Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Welcome to Tech Talk and welcome to 2023. Thank you to our loyal and casual listeners alike. While James and I enjoy bringing you the latest in technology each and every week, the beginning of a new year is also a great time to reflect. We brought you approximately 470 different tech stories in 2022, so this episode is dedicated to the most popular 25 of those stories. We hope you enjoy listening to them as much as we enjoy bringing them to you. Pop your tinfoil hats on for this one, folks. 5G networks. The promises came from telecoms of faster speeds and higher capacity. And the warnings came from the conspiracy theorists and internet researchers of devilry and disease. And so, to protect their flock, a company has developed and marketed a protective anti-5G necklace that comes to you packaged in the email with a free dose of irony. Matt, firstly, with it, will this magical amulet protect me from 5G? He asks, expecting the, no, the answer no. <laughs> I don't think we need protection from 5G, but... No, we don't. I, I love the fact that the Authority for Nuclear Safety and Radiation Protection, otherwise known as ANVS, it's a Dutch nuclear safety authority, has weighed in on this. So suddenly the 5G conspiracy theorists are going, oh, fantastic, the ANVS is coming in and making comment about this. All those years have been saying that something's been going on. They've been waiting to hear from them. Oh, and finally, finally, finally. And what they've said is, please don't wear this 5G necklace because the 5G necklace is actually putting out ionising radiation. Uh, that can do damage <laughs> to you. So so there's a radioisotope in there somewhere. Why? I don't know. Oh, Why no. would they put some sort of radioisotope uh, in an anti-5G necklace? I don't know whether they wanted to make it do something, but it's one of those things that, oh no, I'm being damaged by 5G. Look, I've got this red mark on my skin. Lucky I've got this necklace on, which is the thing causing the red skin. So <laughs> it just seems absolutely crazy. Some, some kind of like noise cancelling headphones or something that send out other ultrasonic sound. <laughs> it's exactly right. It's, yeah, right. I don't know why someone would make it that way. Normally you'd think it would be dearer to make it that way. Surely it would have been cheaper for them just to put a bit of plastic together mm. and say, hey, it's a 5G necklace or an anti-5G necklace that protects you. And people would go, okay, I'll buy one of those. Yeah. Why would you bother about putting something in there? But they have done that. And in doing so, well... They're just doing damage to people. So the ANVS said that if you wore this, for example, all throughout the year, you would probably get some red skin. You'd probably even get a little bit flaky on the skin. And if you kept wearing it, you probably might get to the stage where you might actually create some cancer cells. So I don't want to get hurt by 5G, so I'll wear this thing that's going to do damage to me. And so, of course, anyone that had something happen to them would say, gee, Lucky I had this on because imagine how bad it would have been if I hadn't have had this on. Uh, the irony of uh, I don't trust the science in 5G, but I will trust the science in this <laughs> magical amulet. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But that would be assuming, James, that there is some science in this amulet. And there is some science in this amulet, but uh, it's science that's going to do damage to you. So, yeah. so if you see an 85G necklace out there, just have a look at the warning, see if the ANVS has got something to say about it. And I'm sure 
other nuclear authorities around the world would have something to say about it as well. This is just the first one that happens to have come out about it. They're trying to protect their citizens, obviously. But And I think if the solution comes out of a B-grade 80s movie, um, <laughs> then it's probably too good to be true? <laughs> probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I just I love the whole thing about how is the necklace, just let's go through the science, let's pretend 5G was doing your damage. How's a necklace going to protect mm. other parts of your body or your brain? Or Yeah, don't run logic through there. So if you see those, this is a bit of a PSA, all those presents that you might be getting out there for Christmas, if you're someone that thinks you're going to be harmed by 5G and you get one of these presents, just have a good look at it first before you go and Take care. wear it, put it on, or and do whatever you're going to do with it. Don't throw out your aluminium foil hat. <laughs> That's right. You probably need it with this one. Bust out the Kleenex, folks. Flags are flying at half-mast, and in the faint distance you can hear the sombre tones of a funeral march for the Blackberry is dead. Vale the Blackberry. Once upon a time, the loyal and trusted friend of entrepreneurs and politicians the world over. Matthew, I'd forgotten these things even existed. <laughs> Don't say that, James. I used to love my Blackberry. Did you ever actually have one? No, I didn't, but I had well, family members that you're, did. you're a non-believer. <laughs> yeah, I was a non-believer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were called Crackberries at a time because yeah. people were so addicted to them. It was like crack. And as you say... Famous politicians, anyone that was important. Barack Obama. In fact, Barack Obama famously held on to his BlackBerry. He came into office yeah. in 2008. <laughs> that wouldn't let go of it. Wouldn't let go of it. And they said, no, no, you need to have a fully secured device. No, I, I need my BlackBerry. I'm so addicted to it. They end up giving him a reduced feature BlackBerry. So he still get to, got to keep his BlackBerry, yeah, yeah, right. but they just took away some of the features. I'm not sure exactly what they did to it, but their cybersecurity personnel said, well, we'll give you something that's like a BlackBerry, but we just removed some of the features. And it had the full QWERTY keyboard on it, didn't it? It had the full keyboard on it, physically typing. And I remember when smartphones first started coming out and one of my daughters had one, and I said, I'll give you a race because the physical keyboard is so much better than that silly yeah. little keyboard on the face of the smartphone. But BlackBerry were the first ones that really said we need email everywhere we go. Mm. Before BlackBerry came along, and, and certainly a few years before that, when we started getting email on our computer, I can remember when we'd set up computers for customers and they used to dial out to collect email once a day because <laughs> it was like mail. You'd go into the post office and collect your mail once yeah. a day. So you do that the same with your email. The biggest decision customers used to make would be what time of day? Do we do it 9 o'clock in the morning? Do we do it after lunch, for example? When's our dial out? And when you would dial out, it would then send any of your emails you had stacked up and collect all your emails that people had sent you. So imagine that, sending someone an email and go, I wonder when James is going to get back to me. I wonder what time his collection time is for the day. <laughs> and then, of course, you wouldn't answer them for a day because you'd get the mail yeah. and then it might be doled out for a couple of minutes and then the next day it would dial out and send back the response to that person. Well, look, I've got to confess I'm still hopeless with my emails. I've still got to <laughs> – anyway, but – You're dialing out once a day still, yeah, are you? <laughs> once a day, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, of course, Blackberries came along, and obviously this is getting to the point where people realise they need to be connected a bit more often than once a day. And it was a first handheld device that allowed you to get that email on the go all the time without using up lots of data because the thing was mm. a smartphone or devices that had email on them, if they – use much data, you were being charged per kilobyte, not per megabyte, mm. per kilobyte for your wow. data. And that got expensive. The really clever thing that BlackBerry did, and they basically the idea came about from 1999, so very early on in the whole connected email revolution, the very clever thing they did is they had back-end servers. And when you'd send an email, it would go via one of these servers, and it would cut out all the extra stuff in that email and send just the raw information that was needed, just the data sort of that mm. type of thing. And the idea there was it would reduce the amount of traffic. So you could get a plan, and, and I'm going on memory here, but I think I used to pay 
$50 a month for unlimited BlackBerry data. So it was all mm. my browsing via the BlackBerry service, all my email, and that was incredible. If I had a smartphone that used normal data, because data was so expensive, that would have been hundreds of dollars, easily hundreds of dollars. And I had a bit of a run-in with the managing director of Microsoft at the time. I was at a Microsoft conference. We were a gold partner with Microsoft. And the managing director pulled me aside and said, look, you're using a BlackBerry here. It's a Microsoft conference. You should be using a Microsoft phone. I went, oh, that'd send me broke. If I used a Microsoft phone with all that data going back and forth, oh, 50 bucks a month and I can get all my data. That's just fantastic. And anyway, so they weren't happy with me still, but that was the big thing. Blackberries really changed the game from that perspective. But of course now, as of about a week ago, they turned off all their backend infrastructure. I don't know if there's anyone left actually using a Blackberry, but they turned off all their backend infrastructure. So officially... The BlackBerry is now dead. If you have one of those Blackberries, for you now to send email, even for the messaging service, the BlackBerry messaging service, any of those things that relied on the BlackBerry servers, that's now gone. So you've now got a nostalgic paperweight. <laughs> and I had a bit of a quick look at it. I thought it was interesting just to see how things changed over the years. The first mobile phone that I sold was 1990. And I just wanted to look at very briefly the change in the manufacturers over those years. Mm. Back when I first started selling phones, Motorola was it. What you bought was a Motorola, just which model you bought was the decision, whether it was a Motorola bag phone or one of the handheld, the large The bag hand- phone, you mean one that was, had the satchel that, uh, that went with it? Or the, it was a very stylish satchel. It was a man <laughs> bag, I think. It used to hang over your shoulder. You'd turn up to the pub to have a, yeah, a beer with right. your friends with your little man, man bag, bag over your shoulder. Yeah, that was the one. So phone. they were a bag phone and they were more powerful. They were three watts of power they used to output compared to the handhelds for 0.6 watts. So they were more powerful. So they were very important to have those. And then you had, of course, the Motorola, the huge handheld ones. Yeah. You see some funny old ads where someone's looking very sleek and sophisticated with that huge with battery. brick, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. <laughs> and they were called the brick. And then, obviously, the, the flip phones. They got some of their Dynatac flip phones. But Motorola ruled the, ruled the roost for many years. And then this little upstart Nokia, this little tiny Finnish company, wasn't that tiny, but from Finland, really, taking on the might of Motorola. Well, again, it's one of those things that when someone is in front – and they become a bit arrogant. Motorola thought they would be the mobile phone manufacturer forever. Dr. Martin Cooper in 1973 made the very first mobile phone call on a Motorola. He worked for Motorola. So Motorola believed that they owned that space. But of course, Nokia came along and they started chewing away at that market share from Motorola. And by 1998, they became the number one manufacturer, number one seller of mobile yeah, phones in the world. everyone was carrying the Nokias. They were, absolutely right. And it started slowly at first. You know, they just got in front of Motorola. And that's when you had companies like Ericsson, Panasonic, Alcatel, that made up the top five yeah, across right. the world. So there are some blasts from the past there. Absolutely right. But Nokia, again, in they came along and said, we're now king, we'll rule the world. And they got to the point where they were so popular that they sold – 265% more phones than the company in number two spot in wow. worldwide market share. <laughs> so for every one phone of the number two spot, they sold 2.65 phones. Was it because you could play Snake? Snake was a big part of it. Absolutely yeah. right. Snake. And this is what they did. They captured what people wanted. It wasn't about email then. It was about a small phone, good battery life, having some games like Snake on there. Of course, texting came along, convenient ways to do texting, adaptive mm. auto text, all these sorts of things. Again, Nokia thought, they were going to rule the roost forever. Then you had some other upstarts come along, like BlackBerry, who didn't ever make it to number one, but got to the stage where they were selling 
about 40 million phones a year. They had about 80 million users at their peak around 2012. But of course, smartphones that did a bit more than the BlackBerry also came along and you didn't have to have that quirky physical keyboard. They had mm. the, the keyboard on screen. So after Nokia went to number one for many years, you, and Motorola dropped off the face of the planet almost there was just no one buying Nokia uh, Motorola's but then Nokia didn't see this threat from smartphones coming along so 2012 was when Samsung came along and they hit the top and then you had companies like Nokia Apple ZTE and LG rounding out that top five Blackberry around there as well they were around that maybe fifth or sixth spot but they went up very quickly and then once these smartphones could do everything the BlackBerry could do with reasonable data costs, suddenly they went down very quickly as well. And mm. then for the last probably six or seven years, you've really had that fight amongst Samsung, who have stayed pretty much on top, but with Huawei, Xiaomi, Apple, they're all keeping the pressure on Samsung, but they've been on top now since around about that 2012 point when they knocked off Nokia. So they've been there for 10 years, so it's probably time that someone else came so along. Something's going to happen. It's time looking for another explosion. The, looking at that history there from 1990 till now, you've really had Motorola, then Nokia, then Samsung, and then what next? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if there's a moral to be learned from that, it's complacency is a cruel mistress. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And now it's time for our splash of cold water to the face cybersecurity wake-up segment, folks. The most common password list for 2021 has been released, which makes for somewhat sobering award ceremony indeed. Matt, I think if anyone listening to this uh, next bit hears one of their passwords read out, then they're going to need to literally give themselves an uppercut. I can't believe that not only are some people using these passwords, but they are the most common Hit us with it, Matt. Yeah, that's a bit scary. So this is based on 8.4 billion passwords across the world. So Mm. there have been various data leaks from time to time. So an organisation has compiled all those data leaks to say, let's have a look at all these data leaks. So these aren't just, oh, I talked to a couple of mates down at the pub and he told me a couple of passwords they were using. This is based on 8.4 billion passwords. So a fair bit of of data. data. Yeah, that's right. So number one on the list is... One, two, three, four, five, six. My God. <laughs> if you're using that, folks, and be honest with yourself, That's give right. yourself an uppercut right now. And then it gets worse. The second most common was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> and it goes through a range of numbers, one, two, three, four, five. We finally get at number four some letters involved. We get QWERTY. <sighs> <laughs> so, and well, how did they come up with that, Matt? I know, I'm not sure what a random character is or a bunch of characters there. Number five is my, my favourite. It's oh. always my favourite is password. People are being very clever. I know what I use for password. No one will ever think of using the word password for a mm. password. I'll use passwords. That was number five on the list. And the list goes down a range of numbers, all zeros. One that I thought was interesting, but it's still not that secure. Number 13 on the list was 1Q2W3E. So obviously someone went, I know if I put the first three numbers and the first three letters from the keyboard, that'll trick them. So no, it won't. But good thinking there in some respects. And away you go. Now, if you wanted some advice around it, the best advice I would give is to make up an expression. Or remember with planets, I used to use my very elderly mother just saw Uncle Ned pass. A mnemonic, exactly right. So if you take the first letter from all of those words, if you come up with that little expression, a little saying, whatever it might be, mm. then take the first letters of all those, mix it up a little bit with an upper and lower case and an other character, mm. put a number in there, 
make it at least 10 characters and you've got a pretty strong password. Go to 12 characters, you've got a really, really strong password. And then the really tricky part is use different passwords on different sites. Now, I know no one's going to do that. So if you do nothing else, and I mentioned it before, just use different password on your email password compared to everything else because often people will use an email to get the two-factor authentication. So if you at least have a different password on your email, if someone hacks your password for everything else, they might not be able to get that two-factor authentication. And it's easy to remember a sequence or a sentence uh, as well. You know, so if you just remember a common sentence that has meaning to you yeah. that, and you create a mnemonic from that, it's got no meaning for anyone else. I guess the problem with passwords is, is that either people think, oh, the stuff that I'm making this password for isn't that important, <laughs> so I don't mind, or no one's going to want to hack my stuff anyway. Why would they want to hack my stuff? Yeah, I'm not the President of the United States. Who cares about what I do? And Unfortunately, that's your fatal error. That's yeah. right. Unfortunately, there are bots out there that are constantly trying different sites, different passwords, and I use this really complicated concept that's called the kick-yourself theory. If I lost access to my whatever it is, the password that I'm using for this site, how hard would I kick myself? And if you say, no, I wouldn't care, wouldn't matter, wouldn't kick myself at all, oh, sure, use one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm. If you say, no, I like the contents of my bank account to be mm. in my name and my control rather than someone else's, I think I kick myself pretty hard, then use something a bit stronger. And with so many things there that need passwords, they need passwords because they're trying to protect other information about you. Yeah. And this whole idea of identity theft, you only need a couple of couple of things to uh, to prove that you're someone else. Um, yeah. yeah and that identity theft is really difficult because lose a password, lose some money out of your account, lose access to your social media account, whatever, they're all bad it's things. It's replaceable. Lose your identity, yeah. then that becomes a major drama. So, yeah, I would advise our listeners to stay off the password list for next year. Make sure you're using passwords that don't appear on this list. I reckon, James... The, nec- the list next year will probably be pretty similar to the list this year. <laughs> I know. But let's see if we can just change the world a little tiny bit and get people to just think about their passwords a bit. Yes, people, care a little bit more. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, James. All right, now here's one to titillate our listeners. Sex in space. It's the next big thing for scientific research. I can't believe it's taken them this long. Forget joining the Mile High Club. This is literally next level. Matt, I guess this explains why they've installed mood lighting in the ISS <laughs> and they've got Barry White tunes pumping uh, 24-7 on, on loop there. I just wonder whether someone has had sex in the ISS. I mean, they probably haven't advertised. They probably haven't talked about it. They're probably not meant to. It's got to have happened by <laughs> Surely. now. Well, maybe maybe in a shuttle or something because the shuttle's been going since the 80s. Yeah, so, that's right. So yeah. not a lot of room in there and you couldn't really be that private with your... your Fellow passengers <laughs> on the flight, we're just going over to this corner of the Has cabin. Has anyone laid claim to it yet? We didn't do that bit of research. No, that's right. But there probably would be a lot of trouble if they had. But I imagine some, it's a bit tricky, but you know, it probably anyway. Is. But there's some significant research. Lots of Velcro. That, Sorry. Lots of Velcro. That's right. There's some significant research going on because we're talking about going out in the next frontier of space. We're talking about maybe living on Mars. We're going further afield. Of course. If you're going to do this, you probably are going to need to go past a generation. You might want to be going out into far-flung stars, try and find a Goldilocks planet somewhere, talking about projects that might be hundreds of years. So it might be your great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy and grandmummy that took off from Earth all those years ago. But what happens when you're in space? What happens to the radiation? Because you're getting more radiation when you're Mm. in space. Is that starting to affect the sperm count, for example, or eggs? And then the next thing they started to look at was, what about zero gravity? Does it actually have an impact? And you would think, 
surely not. But our cells are obviously growing up used to having that constant force of gravity. Well, it definitely has an effect on plants. We know that. The way roots and shoots grow and whatnot requires it, gravity. That's right. Now, you've even got some plants that have been up in the ices, haven't you? Or we have. We're, we're planting some wattle seeds. Well, we have planted wattle seeds. We're going to see how they grow over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. so there's research done there, but you would have thought someone would have done the research on sex before plants. Surely that would be more important. <laughs> so these are the things they're doing at the moment. So they're actually already taking my sperm up into the ISS, leaving it there for a little period of time, then bring it back down and then using those that's not your sperm, that's mouse sperm. That's right, not right, mice, okay, sorry. Okay, gotcha. Just to clarify that. <laughs> Thank phase. you, James. That's mouse sperm and lots of them, meaning mice. However, if anyone does want to uh, donate sperm to the... Uh, I'm course, sure they're looking for it. So <laughs> We've so researched some numbers to call. That's <laughs> yeah. right. So they're taking some sperm from a mouse or two okay. and taking it up, leaving that in the ISS for a time, bringing back down, using that to impregnate another mouse and seeing what impact that's having. So the research is being done with lots of smaller creatures, but at some stage, I reckon someone's going to have to say, hey, here's some of my sperm, take it up in the ISS, leave it there for a while, bring it down, and my darling wife wants to get pregnant, so let's use that and see what happens. So it's an interesting little space there. So (laughs) it's not so much about sex in space, which obviously, as you start exploring other frontiers, will probably happen as well, but it's more about about what happens to those components that we need to keep the species going as we explore this wild frontier of space. Yeah, yeah, exciting times afoot there. I wouldn't actually have thought that would have been the first thing. I would have thought how you continue to live and how you get the propulsion systems and all this. Someone in the back room said... What about uh, sex? What about, yeah, what about how we keep the species going? Yeah, oh, that's fine. We just, oh, okay, good question. We should think about that we one. Be careful that we can actually do it. Yeah. And that was decidedly less sexy than I was uh, sort of angling for too, Matt. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, what a buzzkill. <laughs> Idealists among us who believe in the strength of the human spirit will argue that some things in this world just cannot be bought. And so when... Josh Wardle, the creator of lockdown phenomenon Wordle, promised that he wouldn't ever sell his his unique uh, app there. He would remain free for its players for eternity. Wordle devotees around the world smiled with gratitude. But Matthew, it appears that everyone has their price. And there are no exceptions. It does appear that. And he did. Josh made that statement to say this will remain free for the millions of daily players. What a great concept. And having millions of people yeah. play it, it sounded fantastic. Thanks, Josh Wardle, for that. That's right. Until a decent offer was put on the table. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Uh, every man can <laughs> And actually, board. it wasn't quite as big as I thought it might have been. There are millions of people who play this every day. There are people who are dedicated to it. It hasn't got a lot of hang time. So maybe that counts against it slightly. People mm. might spend 30 seconds, a minute, a couple of minutes until they solve it. And then, as we've talked about before with Wordle, you can't do it again until the next day. So you're not going to spend hours on it. So maybe that reduces the advertising potential of it. It's a bit old-fashioned in that regard, that, that you're not playing for further rewards and further rewards and further rewards. You're not trying to build anything up. You're just essentially just trying to solve the problem for the day. Well, that's at the moment, isn't it? And yeah. that may well change because the New York Times has offered a figure, or they've come to agreement with Josh, for a low seven-figure sum, which even that, so that's maybe three or four million, I'd call a low seven-figure sum. Mm. Even that, that sounds nice. It nice solves pay day. for me, but um, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, if I've got something that millions of people want to use, maybe you want to sell it for a bit more. Well, that's interesting. Interesting, isn't it? And I'm also intrigued the fact that the New York Times or anyone else didn't just come along and say, well, it's actually not that complicated. We can probably get a programmer to create that in a few days. The concept's great. Well done, Josh. We'll just steal the concept. But I think New York Times have shown a bit of credibility here. They've taken a bit of 
chump change out of the bottom drawer. <laughs> Throwing it at Josh and said, we'll just buy the concept and retain our credibility. But the big question now is, what is the New York Times going to do with it? With it. Mm. Are they going to just flood the page with advertising? Are they going to put it behind a paywall? Are they going to make it so that you can play multiple times over or maybe pay a subscription to play more than once? There's a whole range and of options. And you play for rewards and then you can buy more coins and then you can <laughs> buy your rewards. and then, oh. Don't give them ideas, James. No, <laughs> but it, it is interesting that at the moment they've said it will still be free for the millions of daily players at the moment. Mm. How long There's that's for? There's a disclaimer for? right there. Exactly right. How long that goes for? what the model will look like in years to come. Who knows? But at the moment, look, good luck to Josh Wardle. I think most people in his position who just created a little fun game for his girlfriend in lockdown and someone says, mm, I'll give you a few million for that, they probably go, well, I could pick the right lottery numbers and mm. <laughs> win the lotto or I could just hand this over to them or sell this to them. So I think from Josh's perspective, that's okay. I'm really interested to see how the New York Times monetize this and whether people will keep playing in the same numbers. Yeah, well, look after us, New York, New York Times, um, and make sure that, uh, yeah, you keep the, the dream alive, I guess. Now, I know I came a little bit late into it, but I've gotten into Wordle. I've been bitten by the bug, <laughs> good, and good. I get the appeal. It's a really simple game design, and, you know, it's not that big a commitment. One game per day. Yeah. But the New York Times have added their own little special touch to it, and it's been tainted. Matt, am I alone here? There is something in this, right? I wonder how our Wordler listeners are also feeling. Yeah, I think not very happy is really the bottom line for it. We did talk about the fact recently that the New York Times has bought Wordle from Josh Wardle, and they paid a few million dollars for it. Happy days to Josh. Good luck to him. But logically you think there's going to be some model mm. they're going to have where they make money out of it. Put it behind a firewall or paywall. Put it behind something where you're going to have to pay to use it or advertising on the screen, whatever. So put that aside for the moment. The New York Times promised that the wordplay would stay the same with Wordle. They wouldn't mm. change it. They wouldn't give you more guesses or less guesses. It would all be the same. And that lasted about a week. And now they've changed the list of words. So you might say, oh, you're being a bit pedantic there about changing the play of the game. But it does change the play of the game because the it dynamic. means yeah. the words that you can put in as a guess, even if the solutions might have changed, the word list has changed. So they've taken out some of the words. Now, it's political correctness gone a bit over the top maybe. For example, they've removed the word wench. It's oh. a five-letter word that Josh Wardle had in the list of allowable words, again, for your guess, or it might be a solution one day. I don't think wench is necessarily the worst word you could possibly have. I can understand why there might be some reservations about it, but we're not calling someone a wench. We're just saying, here is a five-letter word in a That's game. Right. Yep. Slave is another one they've yeah, taken out. Right. Is that getting overly sensitive? Yeah, I think am I being probably a is. Bit, yeah. bit, uh, am I being insensitive here? But I just, again... I don't think the idea of having slaves is a good idea, James. No, but, but the word slave to. itself, and I'm probably still going to use the word slave at some stage in society when I explain to my kids things that used to happen in days of yore and this is the sort of environment that used to happen. And it might be used to, to describe something very negative, yeah? It could be, but also when you've got arrangements in uh, braking systems, for example, mm. you'll often have a piston master and a piston slave yeah, yeah, in, a, right. in a one-sided braking environment. So surely the word slave could still be used without being offensive in modern society. There's a few other words that I won't mention on the podcast because we want this to be family-friendly. So a few other words they've taken out, which I kind of understand why. 
but it does change the wordplay. And also they've done a thing that oh, I really don't like. They've taken some of the English spelt words and turned them into American spelt words. Yeah. So fibre is one of them. So yeah. fibre, F-I-B-R-E, has now yeah. been changed to F-I-B-E-R. I really don't like when... Aussies use American spelling, and so this now you have to think. You've got to think like American. Think, oh, can we do that? Can <laughs> <we>? <laughs> Is well, that possible? I don't know if it's if it's just me, but I reckon the words they've been choosing over the last six days or so, they're different to the sorts of words that they would have had. Yeah, I'm only new to the game, I know. But, yeah, words that you don't tend to use in common vernacular. Yeah. Yeah, and I just... Well, funnily enough... I'm using the words wench and slave a whole lot. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's just, yeah, some words that, I don't know, it's like New York... City, uh, sorry, the New York Times, you've got your big crossword and that's where you can show how clever you are. That's right. <laughs> Maybe this one is just for the general public to just have a bit of fun with. Well, it's interesting because that's been one of the common complaints that people have had since the New York Times took it over. Yeah, right. And the New York Times have said, no, the list of words that are there have stayed, in other words, the solutions that Josh already had ready to go, All right. have stayed apart from, we've had to take some of these out, which has then changed some of the solutions because one of these might have been a solution coming up. So it has changed at least. But they're saying... Now, this is the New York Times. I'm not, words. I'm not saying that this is correct <laughs> or incorrect. I'm just telling you what they're reporting. Right. They're saying that we not have not suddenly gone and made the words harder, the solutions harder. We've just gone along with the list but made some changes to the word list. So mm. take that at face value. Believe them or not, whatever my, you like. My confirmation bias. <laughs> yeah, that's otherwise. right. <laughs> um, yeah, I just know that I, you know, for the for a long time there, I was getting them in three goes, maybe four goes. Now I'm going down to five and six. Yeah. So the official word it's from the New York Times is... All they've changed is they've removed the obscure words to keep the puzzle accessible to more people, mm. as well as insensitive or offensive words. So what was the it the word. other day? The other day I had, and I'm going to complain about this, the <laughs> final word, I think it was swill. But if you got the S and the I and the double L's, then there's about four or five other options you could have gotten. And then you're just swinging in the breeze. That's aren't right. You? You're just having a guess. And I don't like uh, having a guess in games at no. night. You need some sort of intellect or talent to get there. So, <laughs> yeah, the problem is you need to get that swill word, the options there. For example, mm. swell was another one that yeah. you could have. But oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so you need to get that earlier in the list because then you get to that point where it is a bit of a guess. Well, it could be swill, it could be swell. swell. And out of those two, I'd say swell would be more common. So I'd probably go swell first. Oh, look, we went through the list of spill, still, skill, and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. I don't know. It just annoyed me. <laughs> Um, but I'm going to back off from the New York Times and I'm going to give him a break now. If you didn't already know it, the future has arrived and it's dropping groceries on your doorstep in the ACT now. Forget click and collect. Drone delivers um, deliveries for your groceries are the way to go and it's definitely worth looking into the options for your address. Matt, with petrol prices skyrocketing, Surely people will be looking for any way possible to avoid jumping in their cars, and this is one way to do it. This is one way. It probably would have been good if it was around during the middle of the pandemic when people couldn't go out and get Mm -hmm. their their groceries. So this is with Wing. So Coles has partnered up with Wing. Wing is a subsidiary of Alphabet. Obviously, Alphabet is the new name for Google. So basically, this is Coles partnering up with Google to offer deliveries via drone. Now, only Mm. certain suburbs at this stage – but the idea here is to see how it goes. It's really a bit of a test case. They've only got 250 items they can deliver via this drone. 
I assume they're typically fairly light items. I think if you wanted a large case of water or soft drink, I probably don't think it'd be able to handle it. It's really designed for fairly light things. In amongst those 250 items, you'll be pleased to know is toilet paper. So if we have another rush on toilet paper, you can just order it via drone. And it's quite interesting. It'll have a a drone that's got wings on it, so it's not relying on just the propellers to keep the uh, craft above the air. So it uses those to take off, vertical takeoff, but then it's got wings. So when it's in forward motion, it's using airflow to keep it up, which is better for battery power, obviously. It flies along, hovers about seven metres above your place, and along comes a tether line. So it drops the drops tether line down, down. Let's go of the. How cool is that? Let's right. Let's go of the little parcel there. About one point two kilo maximum for the parcel at this stage. So not a lot of weight in there. And then the tether comes back up, and away it flies. I don't know what happens when your toddler goes out and holds onto the tether line <laughs> and tries to hold on while it flies away. Presumably your toddler's heavier than one point two kilos, so it will probably bring the drone down. But some other solutions use mini parachutes when they drop it, but this particular solution uses a tether line, which they think is a better solution. And this is really testing to see how it goes. And then as we go forward, we'll have more solutions, we'll have more products, we'll have heavier products it can take, Mm. a whole range of things. But at the moment, there's about seven suburbs in the ACT it can deliver to. I'm assuming that if you live in an apartment block, you're out of luck. Because I don't know how it kind of gets into your apartment <laughs> block and flies through <laughs> the lift. Navigate and to the balcony, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe the balcony just drops the tether in from there. So you've got to have some sort of yard for it to drop it into, obviously. A front yard, backyard, somewhere where it can hover above there and drop it down. It's very accurate and where it positions itself. So it's not going to drop it in the gutter of your house or drop it on top of your car. It's going to drop it pretty accurately where you say it needs to be dropped. So, so would someone be at Mission Control on a joystick? Uh, with a camera, or is this uh, all done by GPS? All done autonomously. I would imagine wow. initially during the trial phase they would be having someone watch what's happening, but the idea is it's autonomous. They're not saving a huge amount of staff time if every one of these drones had one person, because you can imagine when they load up a yeah. truck to deliver, they've got yeah. lots of things and they can go on a run. If you had one person from the depot fly out to <laughs> James's place, drop it off, come back, it'd be very labour-intensive, so it's got to be done autonomously. But again, I would imagine in this trial period they're doing it They've also used wings, already been used so far up in Queensland. They did a deal with KFC and they ran some deliveries for KFC. And that was through last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So they had those. They also had some drone deliveries for uh, Grand Plaza in Logan up in Brisbane. So they took certain products from that plaza. So it wasn't just one particular store. You could have a number of different products from different stores in there and have them delivered by drone. Tiffany jewellery by... Yeah, you'd want a bit of of safety in it, wouldn't you, if you had small, expensive items. But last year, the trials gave them 200,000 customer deliveries across the world with wings. So not a lot happening in Australia, a bit more happening overseas, but 200,000 across the world, 200,000 individual deliveries, then that's not too bad. So they're getting there. So all the people who poo-poo this, and some people tell me and say, I'm dreaming when I think that drones will be delivering stuff. Well, they're delivering it right now. You're spot on, the future is already here, but it's going to happen more and more and more. Speaking of makeovers, ladies, excuse me for my ignorance, but how many shades of lipstick does a person need? Seriously. Of course, I say ladies, knowing full well that lippy is for everybody who's into it. Can we save that argument for another time? But how many shades of lippy do you need? Is matching lipstick to your outfit really a thing? I guess so. Well, here's some cool news from fashion giant Yves Saint Laurent. They're now talking about printable lipstick colour. You just dream it up and then hit print to fix yourself some fancy lip paint. Matt, what? I didn't want to insult you, James, but the blue T-shirt 
and the lipstick you've got on today, they, right. they just don't quite match. So well, I, I really think you need one of these. I actually thought they did, and that's the only shade of blue that I've got. Oh, and wow. so um, that's what I wore. Well, and this is why you need one of these Rouge Sur Mesures. Mm. don't know if that's right, but it sounds good. Sounds very French. 4,000 shades of lipstick. I didn't know you would want lipstick in 4,000 shades. I didn't know there was that shades. many colours. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't think I'd actually be able to pick the difference between some of those <laughs> colours there, the, the various shades of blue, as you might talk about. So this is where we're headed. Now... I actually looked at this particular device and thought, it seems a bit expensive. It's about $300. But then I thought, if you've got a number of shades of lipstick, each lipstick device, can you know what are they I called? I don't know what they are. <laughs> the each, correct name. Each stick of stick. lip. Let's call it a stick. And I apologise to all those people out there who are now shaking their heads going, these two uh, don't know what lipstick's called. It's got a name. <laughs> it's got a proper name. <laughs> so if you have a few of those colours, it wouldn't take long to add up to $300. Yeah. Having a device that can print the exact colour. Now, of course, it comes with an app. It's got to have a companion app. Otherwise, it's not real technology. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you put on your outfit, so you put on your blue T-shirt like you've got on. You take a photo of yourself. That's easy. Take a, a selfie. Then you say to the app, choose a colour that will pick, sorry, choose a colour that will match my outfit. And then you get some options for the colour oh, that match. Really? In fact, it will give you a recommended <laughs> option to say, here's the best colour, but here are some other options as well. Once you decide on which of those colours you want, you click on that, it sends information to the device, and it uses four different colours that it's got loaded in there to create whatever colour it decides is the right colour for you. Could it, could it choose a tie for me in the morning as well, Pat? Oh, that'd be better, oh. wouldn't it? Much better. <laughs> That's right. Hasn't got that far yet, right, but okay. there's an opportunity for anyone out there choosing a tie. <laughs> Take a photo of the outfit and then choose a tie to match. I like that one, actually. So the idea then, it prints out something about the size of a pea, then basically put that lipstick on, and you have got the perfect colour, so you won't get me insulting people saying that blue doesn't match that yeah, blue, James. <laughs> then you get the perfect colour to match the outfit. Now, you might also decide that I actually just have a favourite colour, even though I'm wearing an outfit that may not match. I've just got this colour that I really love. So take a photo of that colour and it will perfectly match that colour to the lipstick that you want to put on. So you can have your favourite colour and just produce it whenever you need it, rather than having your lipstick devices there all ready to go and just put that lipstick on. Does it pretty quickly. It doesn't seem to have a huge ongoing cost, I mean the $300 to buy it, but the actual the, the materials little, for the yeah printing. the cartridges each cartridge you put in they don't seem to be that expensive and they don't seem to use them up that quickly so the ongoing cost of your lipstick isn't that much just choose your colour per mm. day this is where we're headed James all my lipstick worries are over that's right solving the big problems of the world we are here we reference the Jetsons every now and then on this show and there's some good news for devotees. You can get nice and comfy in your space-age chairs with a super soft cushions because, ladies and gentlemen, the next stage of the future has arrived. Hamburgers can now be made completely by robotics. We've nearly ticked all the boxes now, Matt. We just need travelators installed everywhere. Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? And we haven't quite got the flying car from the Jetsons yet, but we have talked about it we've, a little bit. We've got some flying cars, but they're not quite Jetsons flying cars. That's right, but this is more important. A vending machine for your hamburger. Yeah, How does that right. sound? So they can yeah, pop up anywhere. That's going to turn some stomachs out there, but it's still food, right? And it's still... It's still a beef patty. Yep. It's still cheese-ish. Ish. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> it's still a bun in there. So it you is. go along to a vending machine, you put your money in. These are in American dollars, $7. You pay your $7 for the vending machine. 
Seven minutes later, which isn't too bad, you're probably going to a hamburger place, it's probably going to be slower than that. Seven minutes later, you get your nice Robo Burger. So it actually cooks it. You can't see it happening. I actually wish it had some glass. You could watch it, but it all happens (laughs) behind the scenes. There's a little graphic image to tell you what's happening. And so the hamburger in a frozen compartment of the vending machine comes out of that. The patty gets cooked. The bun is taken out, and it's just lightly roasted so it's just a little bit crispy some cheese gets squirted (laughs) on top you can have some sauces on there if you like you can choose it obviously yes or no there but that's about it no tomato no lettuce no other bits and pieces no beetroot i'm a big fan of beetroot in my hamburger (laughs) a bit sloppy for the vending machine yeah i'm not sure they'd quite get that but who knows maybe in the future stain everywhere that's right but it's the the device has the ability to hold about 50 meat patties so Essentially, when someone wants to restock it, it's not like someone's got to come along and put in 50 more meat patties. There's just a complete unit that gets taken out and a new unit put in, and that's ready for another 50 beef patties. So it's got the beef patties, it's got the buns, it's got the cheese, everything that's needed for those next 50 to be used. So as long as someone can restock it, however long it takes to sell 50, I don't know whether it takes a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, whatever length of time that takes to refill, obviously the makers of the vending machine have the ability remotely to tell whoever's restocking it that it's now time to restock, so they need to come around and restock it. But that's it. And I actually read an article from one particular person who tried one of the beef patties, one of the robot burgers, and they said, look, as far as a fast food burger was concerned, it was fine. Let's face it, it's just a beef patty cooked. It's a bun, it's yep. some cheese. That's right. So it's probably not much difference whether you do that in a hamburger place or you do that at a fast food outlet or you do that from a vending machine. But essentially, it's doing it there in a really easy format. So I don't know that I'd choose to go to a vending machine and get one. <laughs> but if I was at an airport, for example. But if that was all that was available. Yeah. Yeah, and surely there'd be an app or something that identifies that there's a vending machine somewhere nearby and you could be like ordering your hamburger on your way there. It's a two or three minute walk to the vending machine, bang, yep. and you've only got. I'd a say you're or one step away. ahead of them. I think that's probably exactly what they'll do at the moment. They're probably not quite there yet, but I think that's exactly what you'll do. So you would walk up to it. Hey, that's mine. Get away from yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> I ordered that a couple <laughs> of minutes ago. <laughs> so that uh, sounds fascinating. But the beauty of this, I suppose, is that that vending machine can be picked up and dropped anywhere, mm. as long as it had the ability for people to restock it then you can put food into a whole range of places, whether it be airports, as I mentioned, or whether it be various locations that they just need some food. It could be, for example, a construction site that needs some food nearby in mm. terms of there's not a whole range of food outlets near a construction site. Or it might be some flooding or a bushfire or some disaster that occurs and they need somewhere to bring in some food quickly and have it ready for people. They just bring in vending machines, drop them in there. And again, as long as they get vending machine and power, it does everything else itself. You don't need mm. to bring water in. It's actually got water inside it. So when it cooks, it then actually does a squirt spray of the cooking plate that's inside there. Yeah, okay. So Self-cleaning. It's self-cleaning. So it's got everything contained within it just needs power obviously it's power to keep the beef patties frozen but it needs power to do the whole process and that's it so it sounds like an interesting step forward maybe a long way to go before you get a healthy version of that but this is step yeah, number one I can't say my taste buds are like uh, <laughs> really uh, firing right now i'm not watering at the mouth but anyway yeah you just can't get 
fries and a cola with it. That's the, <laughs> the only option at the moment. But uh, surely, surely that's the vending machine easy. next door. Well, that's right. You might have another one there for your for your various <laughs> soft drinks and uh, fries. That'd be. You wouldn't imagine a vending machine with hot fat oh, sitting in there. I tell you, the uh, the college, the residential college that I stayed at at university, um, we used to get warmed Smith's crisps for warmed. our fish and chips. Yeah, so they would just open a packet of chips and chuck that in the oven, and that's. <laughs> That was our version of fries. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> they can do that pretty that easily. Hardly think. caught on blur. Right. <laughs> no, not, not at all. <laughs> when we talk about a pet being a friend for life, it usually means their life. And let's face it, 15 years is a pretty good run. And that's a bit sad. If only there was a way you could keep your furry friend forever and ever. Well, folks, do you know where this is going? As the age of genetic engineering matures into its next stage, you'll be pleased to know that cloning technology is now available to pet owners and you can clone your favourite pooch or moggy so that they can live on and on and on. Matt, this is really a thing now. This is really a thing and surprisingly easy. And when I say easy, there is a price tag with it, so maybe not that easy, but you can just take your favourite little dog, take it to one of a number of different cloning companies around the world and for a miserable $50,000 US, huh. you can clone your dog. $35,000 for a cat. I'm not sure why a cat's cheaper because I imagine the process is pretty much the same. They're yeah. a bit smaller. I get that. But the one I'm excited about, James, is $85,000 for a horse. Now, Winx, obviously, oh, the wow. most the most famous horse. Well, maybe there's a little Farlap horse that was pretty famous as well. But take Winx, for example, uh, won $26 million in her career, 28 consecutive victories in Group 1 events. So not a bad racehorse. Why don't we just clone Winx? Just don't tell anyone. We'll just go and clone Winx. <laughs> and we've got another horse that surely is going to be pretty good. I mean, from 43 starts, Winx won 37 times. So if we get another horse like that, that sounds great. Until everyone else knows about it, and then there'll be horse races that'll just be, this is the Winx event. Every horse in this event is a cloned Winx. Well, we've got to be careful about this because there are a couple of little uh, finicky little details that need to be considered here as well, though. Well, you mean ethics. Well, not just ethics. Yeah, sure, <laughs> ethics. But yeah, I think about Dolly Dolly the sheep was cloned in 1997. Her clone, though, developed arthritis at a very young age because the DNA was a bit old. So, and this is the, the interesting part, I... I I'm aware of Dolly. Actually, 5th of July, 1996, Dolly was born. 96, okay, 96, sorry. Yep. It was mid-96, okay. Yep. But I, and I know Dolly had some problems, but I don't know if they've ever put that down definitively to the cloning process or whether it just happened because sometimes animals just get sick. So has there been any definitive proof that it was as a result of cloning? I'm going to have to go and do my research on that, uh, Matt. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I thought it was something to do with the age of the DNA because the DNA wasn't necessarily – well, it was, it was taken from a mature sheep. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, so – it is interesting, though, that people would love their pet so much that they would want to clone yeah, it. I know. That's such an interesting thing, isn't it? And even the companies that do the cloning say, yes, it's a clone, but it's not necessarily going to be identical because 25% of the personality, in inverted commas, of your pet comes from its upbringing. Yeah, that's the environment. Yeah. That's right. And it's the old nature versus nurture. And I assume that they only say 25% because 
there's a lower intelligence level for a pet, so it probably learns less about its environment as it grows mm. up. I assume if you cloned a human, then there would be a much greater component that was from the upbringing of that particular human because you've got more intelligence, more ability to remember things. Yeah, more things learned. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But people do it. Barbara Streisand has done it. Uh, oh, Simon, really? Simon Cowell has done it, where they clone, <laughs> clone their pets because they want to have their pet live on and on and on forever. Yeah. But, I mean, part of the mystery of having a pet is the fact that you get a different pet. I mean, I've got, right. I've got four children and they're all very different. I don't think I'd want four clones of myself or my wife. I think having that variety, that mixture of two different people and what you end up with is all part of the mystery. But, but that 25% um, well, sorry, of things that are, are learned, um, that's significant. And so the, the pet that you've got, it's going to be a different pet. It's not the same animal. That's right. And there's no recollection. There's no memory of yesterday we went out and played ball. So today we're going to go and play ball. <laughs> you start, might bring up that new one without playing ball at all. You're start that toilet training all the way from I the know, start. I know. So you, you might as well start with a new set of dynamic material rather yeah. than the same old set. But it is interesting. Then I think you start to get some really interesting ethical issues. So imagine, go back to my Winx example, you take this champion racehorse, but then Farlap was said to have had a, a heart that was about 6.35 kilograms, which made Farlap such mm. a champion over longer distances. Winks was more a shorter distance racer. Imagine taking the genetic material of Winks and say, let's clone that, but let's just tweak it a bit. Let's tweak it so we get a Farlap-sized heart mm. in a Winks horse. And then, holy truth, what have we got now? A horse that can run over short and long distance? I don't know what you get. You might get a complete hopeless result or you might get this <laughs> unbelievable result but when you start cloning and then you start looking at things like CRISPR which we've talked very briefly about That's before right. you start to go what can we create here the world is our oyster but then ethics does start to get in the road a little bit yeah so ethics is a big thing and we talk about that in uh, school at a uh, year 12 level as well just about the ethics of genetic technology yeah, right. um, and yeah we, we try to separate also um, the difference between cloning and transgenics and so modifying uh, DNA per say with cloning you're simply just taking the DNA from one organism and placing it into another uh, um, uh, uh, the egg of, of another organism and so growing it from an egg um, and so yeah cloning is a little bit different but it does blur the lines once you start once it becomes common practice to do that cloning mm. it's not such a big step to go to that next level and I think the really interesting thing is when we start doing animals for so commonly so easily let's say 50 grand if you've got a spare 50 grand I can think of better things well, to do with it but now but it could come down to be cheaper but yeah yeah that's right but once people accept that once they say, look at this, I've got my fourth generation dog from that dog that I had all those generations ago, and it's still the same genetic material, I just wonder how far before people say it's okay to do a human. Yeah. That's the real ethical question, I think. Well, here is some crazy news on the solar power front. Apparently gathering solar power in space and sending it back to Earth is now a thing. Matt, this has got so many pluses, but it's going to need a hell of an extension cord. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> I'm fascinated by this. Obviously, we've got an atmosphere. Fantastic. Happy days. That helps us all live on Earth. Yeah, it protects us from nasty stuff. Gamma That's rays right. and x-rays and whatnot. All sorts of things. So... The problem is, of course, that that absorbs, that atmosphere absorbs some of the sunlight that we get. So when we oh, yeah. collect solar radiation here on Earth on at ground level, then we're not getting as much as if we're up in space. And we see various spacecraft that go off into space that have got solar panels on them to power them while they're in space. So why not take some of that solar power, which is 11 times more powerful, up 
in space than it is here on Earth, take some of that solar power and then beam it back directly to Earth. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, it does. Sounds fanciful. And I must admit, I looked for the date to make sure it wasn't an April 1st story (laughs) on this one. But again, found some research from a number of different sites there. But this is something that's not there at the moment, but this is being researched as a way of giving us power. The other cool part about this is that potentially I can see that you could have something up in space that could have sunlight more times during the day. In other words, you're not relying on sun during the day to produce solar power. At night, you're not getting it Mm. because you could have, and I imagine they're doing geostationary with this, you can have a satellite sitting up there, geostationary satellite, about 36,000 kilometres above the Earth, which can see the sun on a more regular basis than something sitting there on On Earth level. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's right. So it would still have times that might be in the darkness and the shadow of Earth, but you could see it a lot more times during the day. And the reason I think it's geostationary, but I couldn't find that bit of data in the research I did, is because if you're focusing that beam down to Earth, then while you've got satellites spinning past Earth, trying to get them to focus down on a certain spot, I can imagine that's difficult. Yeah, because they're doing a lap of the Earth every hour and a half. Yeah, depending yeah, what height d- they're at. Trying to track that, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if I'd want to be in a plane that accidentally goes past one of these beams that is being <laughs> shot down <laughs> yeah, from Yeah, it'd have to be a fairly focused sort of array, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. That's exactly right. So I imagine they're talking about geostationary. I imagine they've got some way of saying, okay, planes, don't fly through this little bit here. This might be a bit intense. Mm. But having said that, maybe it's not as intense as I think. Maybe it's no much, not much more intense than, say, the sun, for example, but they're just focusing that beam of power coming down. Well, I had all those fears about the Van Allen belt as well, but we know, and conspiracy theorists, you can just take a back seat right now, the Van Allen belt, and we were worried about the radiation from that, and um, we've been able to survive that several times over. Yeah, sure, thank goodness for that. But it is, it's all about this power beaming, so it does sound fascinating. I think we're probably five years away at best from actually seeing this in reality, but I do love the fact that people are out there thinking of different ideas. A couple scientists one day having a coffee and they went you know what there's more solar radiation up above the atmosphere why don't we use that oh you're crazy let's have a look at that and on the conversation goes the research starts the next thing you know people are coming up with these ideas that could be workable tesla came up with the idea of transmitting power wirelessly Mm. um over 100 years nikola tesla now not that's nikola sorry nikola (laughs) tesla yeah Yeah. um but westinghouse wasn't real keen on that because there was no way we're going to be able to charge people for their power (laughs) for this wireless power um, well tesla got a bit nikola tesla got a bit obsessed with that and i think he got to the point where he gave up because he couldn't get it but off topic here slightly but we have seen some examples where people have been doing small amounts of power not Mm. powering your whole house but small amounts of power in a room so you can walk into a room and sit your phone somewhere in that room and it gets powered up from the radiation that's in that room so some of those ideas from tesla Mm. were theoretically possible but the technology at the time didn't Didn't allow it to happen whereas now we've got to that point again not where Tesla was going in terms of powering whole homes, but certainly powering things in a room. Absolutely right. And uh, a focused beam from a satellite out in space is going to have the same sort of width. If it was like a laser, um, have the same sort of width um, from its origin out in that satellite, the geostationary satellite, as it will on Earth. So um, you just need to have your catcher there in the right spot. That's right, a catcher there and no one sticking their eyes in the middle of it to look up (laughs) at that particular ray coming out. But it does sound fascinating. But you could also collect it in areas where you don't have flight paths, you don't have people living, obviously. So Mm. I I think you could do it, but let's look at this in five years' time and see how we go. But yeah. I, I just think the concept That's is a cool idea. Out. It is. Now, who hasn't been caught out in an urgent situation by a phone that desperately needed a charge? Absolutely nobody. 
everybody knows the anxiety that comes when you see that you've hit 5% and you're waiting on a big call. And, and then a good Samaritan arrives with a charger to loan you. But it's the wrong sort. Matt, if only there was a better way. If only there was a single universal charger that we all agreed on. Companies, users, governments, that was the charger to use. If only, James, if only. If, if only we had this government that would step in and make decisions for us and, yeah, no. Well, some people would complain about that, James, because no, that complain. would be a government telling us what to do <laughs> and we need do. our own free will. So this has got a fair bit of history in this. This is really based around Europe, the 27 European countries in the European Union. They've been talking about this for some time. In fact, about a decade ago, they actually said to the manufacturers of electronic products, phones, Game Boys, all sorts of different devices, we would like you to put your heads together and come up with something that's universal because we don't like all the waste that's been created. At the moment, they're estimating in Europe alone, somewhere around the vicinity of 13,000 tonnes of waste, e-waste we're talking mm. about here, from charges alone. Because in Europe alone at the moment, there's about half a billion charges are sold with various portable devices. Oh, we're moving house right now and I've got a large <laughs> box full of charges that belong somewhere to something, but I won't throw them out until I know. Exactly right because you can't get them again. You find that little proprietary charger, you can't get it again. (sighs) So they started down this path and they said, please put your heads together. And of course, the manufacturer said, yeah, okay, thank you, we've heard you, and did nothing about it Mm. because manufacturers don't really like talking to each other. My device is better than your device because it's got a different charger. I've got seven pins, you've only got six pins plus one. And you're welcome to come and use my charger, but at a cost. Yeah, Yeah, we'll only charge you a licensing fee per charger. So that didn't go so well. There's been some discussion, and we've talked about this before, where some of the European Union has said, maybe we should do something a little bit more heavy-handed. So they've kind of gone down that path, and now we're at the point where, essentially, the European Union, there's a, a, a number of members of this, there's a particular subcommittee, I think you'd call it, and they've basically had a vote to say, we're going to make USB-C, USB Type-C, the universal charger. Wow. They voted on that, the subcommittee, 41 to 2. So 41 votes in favour of doing that, two votes against. And did, did Apple chuck a nana over this? Did they go absolutely crazy? Well, they've been chucking a nana over this for some time. When the European Commission talked about it previously, they said, and I find it somewhat amusing because they said, this will stifle innovation. If we've all got to use the one charging port, mm. it will stifle innovation. Our lightning port is so superior to USB Type-C, all the innovation will go. Now, the only thing they didn't mention in that was that the iPad Pro and the iPad Air both use USB-C. <laughs> the standard iPad. I kept quiet about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the iPhone use a lightning port. So for some reason, their iPad Pro, which by the name of it would suggest it's better than the standard iPad, mm-hmm. is not as innovative as the standard iPad because it's got a USB-C Type-C charger. Perhaps they saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, maybe. And I think that is probably part of it. They've probably seen that this is going to happen. They can jump up and down a bit. Chuck a nana a bit, but mm. eventually I think they'll do it because if you had to sell, and this is where, sorry, if I just go back a step, the next step down this process is for the full, all the members, the 705 members of the full legislative council, I'm not sure the exact name of it, but the full European Union, they've got the next vote. And if they vote in favour of it, so the first vote, 41 to 2, that was kind of like a subcommittee. Yeah, wow. So that's, that's pretty, pretty comprehensive. Yeah. 705, sure, it could still go down, but if they vote in favour of it, then there'll be a timeline introduced where the governments across Europe, all the European Union members, they will then say, here's the legislation, all your manufacturers, you've got X amount of years, I assume, to get to that point where 
any new device that comes out has to have USB Type-C. Boom, right So there. when that happens, well, let's assume that happens, if slash when that happens, then I can't see any manufacturer saying, right, here's our device that we manufacture for the European market because it's got to have Type-C and here's the device, identical device, apart from the charging port that we manufacture for the rest of the world. Mm. I think in this case, and I think Europe's actually doing a pretty good job with a whole range of little incentives, initiatives, things that are moving towards net zero and moving towards net zero a bit faster than other countries around the world. I think they're doing a good thing. I think this is just another step down that path. I'm not sure. Well, I suppose it probably does help us get to net zero because you're saving all that waste. But from a consumer perspective, oh, how much better is it going to be? Yeah, <laughs> it's just one yeah. charging port. You pull up to an airport now and you see some of those charging bays and they've got lots of different types of chargers there. Yeah. So many different things. Like you said, you're cleaning out your cupboard and you've got all these different chargers yeah. there. Just yeah. knowing that you've got USB Type-C, that covers, That's let's see, everything. It makes so much more sense. And we did talk about it last week or the week before where some batteries are now coming out with a USB Type-C port directly in the battery. So you don't even need to find yeah. a charger. You just plug straight into USB Type-C. So it's getting better and better all the time. If this goes through, which I assume it will and I hope it will, that will just make it better for consumers around the world. Well, I wonder who's holding the patent for USB-C because they're going to make a mozza, but congratulations to them. That's a very good question, James. I don't know who has the patent for USB Type-C. It's not me. No. Hmm. Anyway, someone obviously does, so that's a good question. This next story has got question marks all over it, like the Riddler's spandex jumpsuit. What the hell is a gravity battery, and how could it be a solution to the world's energy storage issues? Well, gravity batteries are a lot like our Snowy Mountain scheme. So hydro storage, hydro power, you often hear people talk about. Relying on things falling and waterfalls. Waterfalls, that's right. So when you go to somewhere that's a hydro battery, so you often hear talk about hydro batteries, it'll be somewhere where you've got a body of water at a height and then at a lower height, another body of water. And when you've got excess power in the middle of the day, for example, solar panels are pumping out the power, not everyone needs the power then, they run some pumps to pump the water back up into the storage facility up higher. And then in the middle of the night, you might need that power or you need some extra power at any particular point in time. Open the gates, water falls down, spin some generators. It's a really quick way to bring power online. And it's actually quite an effective way of storing power because the efficiency in terms of pumping that water up and then dropping it back down, you don't lose a lot. And I'm going to guess this isn't a well-researched figure here, but you probably only lose around about 5% each time you do that. So it's a pretty effective way of storing power. So great. That's fantastic if you just happen to have a large body of water water. below another large body of water. So when you've got those situations, i.e. our Snowy Mountain Scheme, Happy days. If you happen to live somewhere flat, like we are out here, we've got flat, flat, and then we've got some more flat, it's not easy to go and build a body of water at a higher level and then build another body of water at a lower level because mm. sometimes we also have drought. So then what happens to those bodies of water? So there are companies out there that use weights, normally concrete, sometimes steel weights, in that same sort of process. Then they build little devices, and when I say little, they're probably quite large, in terms of pulleys and the weights, same sort of concept. In the middle of the day, you've got some excess power. Run the motors that spin the pulleys to bring those weights up to a high level, increase your potential energy. Then when you need that power, you just spin it the other way. That potential energy turns into kinetic energy. That spins from generators, generates electricity. One of the problems we used to always hear about with 
coal-fired power stations is if we needed extra power on the grid, it took a long time to fire up, excuse the pun, a coal-fired power station. Mm. And hence, we had coal-fired power stations that would sit there, turn away the whole time, generate electricity, we didn't need it. The whole idea of off-peak power came about because of that, because they're burning the coal anyway, they're spinning the generators, and we might as well be doing something with it, so off-peak power, try and use some of that in the middle of the night. But all of these solutions, whether it be a gravity, a gravity battery or whether it be hydropower, you've got the ability to turn that power on very quickly because, again, open the gates or just drop that weight, Yeah, right. that starts generating power straight away. So if you need that power now, well, turn it on, you're going to have it pretty much now. So there are some companies, for example, one's called Gravitricity, which I quite like the sound of. It's based over in Edinburgh, and they're basically doing a gravity battery that's 15-metre steel tower or maybe multiples of them, and they have a 50-tonne weight that sits on the bottom of that. And so, again, it lifts it up and then drops it down. So that's one particular one. And then there's another one, another concept by the same company where they look at mine shafts, and they say, well, why build this up out of the ground? Because we only need a differential between the high and the low. We could build it in a mine shaft, mine shaft not being used anymore. So we just need that differential so we can just... Pull it up so it's not actually building something up out of the ground, it's using the mine shaft down below. So you've got those concepts, but you've also got another concept in Switzerland called Energy Vault. And so they build a multiple series of these weights in something that would be larger than a container, like a couple of containers base, and then obviously a bit of height to it. So they have multiple of these weights, and then they can bring on more powers as needed. So they might just drop one weight with a little bit of power is needed, but multiple weights can be turned on. So it looks very complicated. When I looked at a picture of one of these, lots of weights in there, but again, each weight is the same basic concept. It's got a pulley that can generate power when it's going down or use power to pull it back up again. Again, the efficiency of these is very good. So it's a really clever way to store power. And I think long-term, you use batteries to store power. They're chemical. They slowly break down over time. Mm. And if they're not used at all, then you actually lose, sometimes the, the number that's shown around is about 1% of charge per month you might lose in some of these large batteries. So if it's not being used, you might actually lose some of that power, so you've got to pump a bit more power in to keep it topped up. As you can see, the logic here, you bring a weight up to the top, it doesn't it slowly fall down, it just sits there and waits until you're so ready, ready to use it. it. Yeah, yeah, so right. it's, a, it's a really amazing. Cool yeah, it is, it's, it's fantastic. But again, a bit like with electric vehicles we talked about in the last story, there are people coming up with solutions. So when people say, oh, that solar power, that's no good, or wind power's no good, mm. there are people coming up with solutions on how to store power because in the coal-fired, I mean, storing power would have still made sense in coal-fired days, but it didn't even register on the radar. It was just, mm, throw some more coal in, just yeah. burn it a bit more, <laughs> spin those generators. We're not using all the power. Oh, who cares? We've got heaps of coal. Whereas now we're saying we might not always have good supply of power. We might not always have readily supply available power with renewables so we need to come up with storage and this is just one of the solutions that's being thought up and actually in probably prototype stage i call it there actually are some little test cases now where they're building some of these and being used but they're probably still at prototype stage mm. yeah so interesting and um yeah the energy crisis right now is it's the the biggest well, one of the biggest issues uh, on the planet uh, what a way to come around, around with a solution Our first story has caught a couple of people off guard, including Elon Musk. We've talked in the past about how the current Australian EV market has been, well, hardly inspiring, but Elon Musk has decided to release his new Tesla SUV model right within our shores, and the first signs suggest that this is going to go off like a frog in a sock. 
Perhaps, Matt, it may even become the most popular EV in the country, perhaps. That's my big prediction, James. It's right. probably a pretty safe prediction. The Model Y, I actually think by the end of 2022, even though it's only going to be on the market for about six months in this year, I think it'll be the number one selling car for this year. Number one selling EV, sorry, yeah, for okay. this year. So the Model 3 was incredibly popular, about 12,000 were sold last year. It outsold the number two EV to a factor of eight. So it was pretty popular. Now, to do that, it's not only got to be high performance, but it's also got to be super cheap. Well, I don't think about super cheap, super value Uh, for money. Value for money, That's right. And I think the Model 3 is value for money. I think the Model Y is definitely value for money. In fact, people are quite surprised because the first Teslas that came out, the Tesla Roadster, for example, that came out was several hundred thousand dollars. Mm. So people just expect the Tesla brand name to be expensive. expensive. But then when they start looking at a variety of EVs and they look at the base model Y or 3, they go, oh, it's actually not that expensive in relative terms. I'm saying it's not Mm. a little town runaround that you might just pay 20 or 30 grand for, but you're talking about 60-odd grand for a base model 3, for example. Mm. So, So the model Y is what a lot of people have been waiting for because... Everyone wants an SUV now for some reason. I don't mm. know why. You go past schools where kids are being picked up at the end of the day and you see exactly. a lineup of SUVs. It's a family car. Yeah, it is. It seems to be. So no longer is a sedan good enough. So the Model 3 and the Model Y have both got the same basic architecture. The wheelbase, the chassis, if you like, is the same. But the lid on top for the Model 3 is a sedan. The lid on top for a Model Y is an SUV. And just on some early reports, I received an email from Tesla to say, hey, the Model Y is now available. Great. And I shot that to a few mates because I knew a few people who were interested in it. And one of them ordered it that day. He, as soon as he got it, he oh, said, really? thanks very much. Get in there and order Bang. it. And his just delivery like date was August this year. Oh, really? I had another friend who wasted days. He took about three or four days before he then finally ordered it. He just, <laughs> wasted days. And he, and he sent me an email and said, I just ordered it, and it told me a March time frame for delivery. Oh, wow. Now, I imagine they're not just bringing five or ten in the country. I no. imagine they're bringing some quantity in the country. And so within a few days, to go from an August delivery to a March delivery means I think it was pretty popular. I actually think there were a few people with Model 3 orders who probably cancelled those as well and went to the Model Y. They probably mm. ordered the Model 3 going, well, I'll get in there and get one and the Model Y will come out at some stage in the future. And so that's a bit of an indication, I suppose, about the popularity of it. Mm. It's also gotten to the point where Elon Musk has actually tweeted to say that gee, we've been caught off guard a little bit. We're trying to accelerate right-hand drive production, which obviously is Australia. There's a few mm. other countries that are right-hand drive as well. But obviously that's caught him a bit off guard in terms of how much this is going to be influenced in the Australian market. So that's good if they ramp well, up production, obviously. Isn't it? So yeah. that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And so, again, with lots of car brands, lots of manufacturing out there, there have been some problems with COVID-19, even some problems in the Shanghai factory. That's where the Australian cars were built over in the Shanghai factory. But I think a lot of those will be better as time goes on. But I also think there's another couple of little things, and it doesn't take much. I, I love the idea of modelling. I love, you know, we've talked about supercomputers before, mm. and some of those used in some incredible modelling. But just some little tweak in the financial services sector, you wonder how much will that have an influence? And I think there's probably three things that are going to really make next year be the the year of the EV finally in Australia. Uh. We talked about it briefly, the FBT exemption, the federal government's going to bring in from the 1st of July. So straight away you go, well, that's good. That might save people in a business scenario, a few thousand dollars a year. Then you've got the $3,000 
rebate that you get in New South Wales. Now, other states are doing something similar. Stamp duty exemption in New South Wales. And again, these all have cutoffs. So, for example, the stamp duty exemption, if you want to get your stamp duty back, the stamp duty exemption was $78,000. So if you, that's in New South Wales. If you get an EV below seventy eight grand, then you get your stamp duty back. That's great. The rebate is for an EV below $68,750 a different amount, which is probably a bit confusing for people. And then the FPT exemption, if you buy a car below $84,916. So there's a few different amounts there. But if you're buying that car around that mid-60s, you're going to get all those back. Stamp duty, rebate, and then FPT. Suddenly you go, hold on, with the price of petrol the way it is, and these few things here, these few triggers, and they start making you think about it, then I think people are going to go, right, now's the time to go and get one. So Mm. 1.95% in 2021, that'll go up in 2022. But in 2023, once all these things start to come into effect and we get better supply, I think 2023, here I am, James, predicting it now. There it is. You heard it, The year of the EV for Australia, which Mm. means we're a long way behind the rest of the world still, but the year of the EV for Australia. Encouraging signs nevertheless. We've got a long way to catch up. Norway, 86.2% last year. Uh, Sweden, 45%. Netherlands, 29.8%. Germany, 26%. We've got a long way to go to catch up to some of Mm. those countries. Mm. But, you know, maybe early days and the future is an encouraging place, I think. It is indeed. Now, remember watching sport in the early 80s when the instant replay was a brand new thing? It was like a technological miracle. A revelation, no less. It was like reliving a highlight and you didn't even have to wait till the six o'clock news. It was awesome. Then someone in the early 90s thought the idea might make for a good way to help the on-field cricket umpires make their decisions. And that opened the floodgate. So now almost all professional sports use some sort of video review tech for referees to fall back on. Fast forward to the World Cup football in 2022 where FIFA will now track all players' bodies using artificial intelligence and try to remove any doubt when it comes to offside calls. Matt, how's all this going to work? It sounds incredible, doesn't it? And I remember I was actually watching a game the other day in between the drinks, oh, sorry, the, the morning and, and afternoon session of a test that's going on at the moment. They had a cricket match from 988, and there was a Sri Lanka versus Australia, and there was a run out there, brilliant run out. And the guy would have been at least half a metre out, maybe more. And the on-field umpire mm, stared, stared, not out. And you could see the TV <laughs> um, uh, commentators talking about it going, well, it's so clearly out. And yeah. we could see it at home yeah. watching it. But the players, and they kind of knew it, I reckon, even the guy running probably he saw the stumps shattered while he's running half a metre out still. <laughs> but he's not going to give himself up. Well, most players don't. So that was when I think they started thinking about it. Yeah. And so 92 was the first ever, or they started in 1992, 1992 was the first ever run out given by the third umpire, the TV umpire, Sachin Tendulkar was the first player ever given out. For for all the legendary status of Sachin and all the brilliant career that he had, is one little thing that he's got there as a little footnote on history as being the first ever player given out by a third field umpire. And as you said, now tennis where Wimbledon's just finishing up at the moment. So you've got Wimbledon and you've got, I actually love when they do it in the tennis and when a player calls for review and they could just give an instant answer, of course, but there's a bit of drama when they show the slow motion 
image. It's not the real ball, of course. No, it's the, it's all, the cartoon it's style CGI, image. Yeah. yeah, of the ball coming down, getting close to the line. The whole crowd's ooh, and then <laughs> hits the line or doesn't hit the line. So it it's very a, public, isn't it? Oh, it is very a bit of tension yeah, and drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then no one questions that. No one says. Are you sure about that? Can I see the software behind that to see exactly how that happens? So yeah. anyway, it's fascinating. So with soccer, it's one thing that we haven't seen for really much. There, there was a bit in the last World Cup where they did show whether the ball went across the goal line. Mm. So that was one thing where, let's say, a, a, a goalie dives at the last minute and just saves the ball and pushes it back or kicks it out. Did it actually go across the threshold or not? And so they started using... It's almost like soccer felt like it was being left behind it and it needed to like get more involved with this. What can we do? <laughs> How can we catch up to tennis and cricket and gridiron yeah. and all the rest of it? <laughs> but then this year at Qatar, they've got eight stadiums they're fitting out at the moment with this sort of technology. Now, the offside rule in soccer is something that even if you have all the clear data in front of you, it's still up for debate about Mm. whether that player was running onto the ball or not. And I'm not a soccer expert. I'm not going to even try and explain the offside rule. But basically, there's always debate. Every time there's an offside call, anytime I'm watching any soccer, there'll be 10 people debating about whether that was offside or not and giving 28 different reasons. So FIFA's taken on a biggie in terms of this one to try and use this for offside calls. So what they've done is they've put a sensor inside the ball. I thought that was pretty clever for a start. So you can imagine, yeah. I think of a little ball that I might throw to my dogs, it's got a rattle inside it, so <laughs> I'm not sure how the sensor's embedded in the ball. It's obviously got to be suspended in some way, it can't just bounce around inside the ball, and it can't change the weight of the ball too much, you think. So but they it, can't have multiple sensors around the lining of the ball, maybe? I don't know. It could Perhaps. be, exactly Perhaps. that, yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how they're doing the sensors, and then obviously there's a battery that's got to be inside there. So ultimately, mm-hmm. there's a sensor in the ball. Now that sensor relays the position of the ball on the field back to the sensors around the actual field 500 times per second. Oh, wow. And I thought, that's a bit of overkill. That's a fair bit. But then I did the numbers. The Guinness World Record for the fastest ever ball kicked is 129 kilometres an hour. Francisco Marin from Spain did that back in 2001. Right. So that's a fair speed. So that's about 35.8 metres per second. So then I thought, well... That's interesting. If we break it down to how many five hundredths of a second that is, how far can that travel at that maximum speed? It's seven centimetres. So you think, okay, 500 times a second, it probably does need to be that much. Now, that's the fastest ever ball, but I'm sure soccer players in general matches still kick it fairly fast. So every seven centimetres at most, you know the position of that ball. Yeah, it's going to improve the resolution of of, um, your your measurements. Yeah, that's right. But then you've got to track it against the players. Just the position of the ball can help you with a goal line, for example, but it doesn't help you with offside call. So then they've got 12 cameras around, as I said, eight stadiums they're using. So they've fitted out all eight stadiums in Qatar with 12 cameras. And those 12 cameras then have 29 tracking points on the body of each player. Oh, right. Yeah. So you've got to wear all these stickers all over your body. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe they're doing it with Little some bots. artificial intelligence <laughs> rather than just stickers there. But the same concept, I think. Yeah. And then they combine all that data. So they know the position of the ball at a maximum of seven centimetres apart. They know the position of the players that are on the field with all these tracking points, and they combine all that, put it through some AI, and then if there's an offside call that the AI thinks is correct or an offside call, it sends it down to the third umpire, if you like, who then reviews it very quickly and then sends the call to the on-field umpire. After all that, FIFA have said, but it's still the on-field umpire's call. 
Now, it would be a brave umpire who would yeah. say, forget the 500 times a second, forget the 12 <laughs> cameras, forget the 29 tracking points, I reckon he was right <laughs> or wrong or whatever. I don't know. I reckon they're making a rod for their backs here because we've seen, like it's happened quite a bit in rugby league, where uh, the VRA comes back and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dodgy decision. There's been a lot of complaints about it. Yeah. And I just reckon they're making a rod for their backs. They're trying very hard to get this perfect situation. Yep. I think we just... Look, I'm all in favour of going back to the 80s and just throwing up your hands and saying, well, referees call, whatever. When the referee, I was always taught to play the whistle and uh, and let the referee make the call. And if you don't like it, you're allowed to grumble, do it under your breath, but go back and take your position and get ready for the next play. Well, I I still claim back in the 80s that I won our semi-final cricket match in third grade with a six. Here comes the story, yeah. And and of course, we were down to the last wicket. We had one wicket left. We had the scores tied. And so I'm facing and I've gone, okay. Everyone's on the one, edge of their seat. One run. That's all I need. But of course, you see a bouncer come in. You've got to be the hero. Yeah, so I've, I've done this beautiful hook. And, and again, as I'm telling you the story, it was a six, James. It was a six. <laughs> a fielder stood. We used to have logs on the boundary. Right. A fielder stood on the boundary and took the catch and then jumped back into the field of play. So I still argue that he took the catch while he was on the actual log, yeah. which means it's a six. That's a six. In the field of play, and he had to would have had to have touched the ground before he took the catch. He said he claimed the catch. So the umpire on the field, who's fifty or sixty metres away from the boundary, <laughs> went, uh, "You're out." Uh, uh, so again, that sort of thing. What do you do? Threw you bat at him. And <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, assault charge is still pending, but you do exactly what you said. You go. Grumble, grumble under your breath, and you walk off. As and it you turned didn't call out, for the video replay? Well, I did, but no one knew no. what I was talking about because <laughs> I'd gone 30 years in the future. <laughs> but the thing is that you, you're right. You just learned to accept the call. In that case, it was okay because we actually finished higher on the table, so we still went through to the final. So it was okay with the scores oh, tied. I didn't know that at the time. I was still pretty annoyed. Still, that yeah. I just That's all about to win the win. The it's all about the moment. That's you right. You that moment. Exactly right. So you're right. You kind of learn to accept it, but... But that's okay. We were playing third grade, and if we made the final or not, we were still going to have a couple of beers after the match, and yeah. that was the end of it. But I also understand that when you're playing professional sport for your country, a bad call can make or break a career. You oh, get given out early that. in an innings, or you make some bad call. I mean, Wimbledon at the moment, the Aussies have just won the doubles final. They were facing match points in the first round of Wimbledon, mm. so they could have been knocked out. Now, imagine if they got a bad call in the first round yeah. and one of those match points got converted to a win for the other team or mm. the other doubles other, pairing, yeah. and that's it. They didn't make it past the first round, and we go, oh, well, good on them. They went and played the first round, end of story. But now they've won Wimbledon. They've won the final, which is fantastic, but a long way from losing in the first round. Yeah. Again, when it's professional sport, when that's what you do for a career, I can understand why you might want to have every possible ability to get it right. Yeah, and, and I know you're – uh, when that happens and the wrong call's made, you're really answerable to one really angry person there. But with the amount of betting that occurs, yeah, you're now answerable to millions of people with billions of dollars on these things. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I tried to have a conversation about this with my brother-in-law. I, I, I like the old days where the referee was allowed to make mistakes, but not. <laughs> yeah, you could yell at the referee and be cranky with him. Yep. But he blew his whistle and that was final, yeah. right? The, the referee's call was final. 
yeah, people, we, there's no going back to the old days. I, I no, think. no, that's right. So keep an eye on the World Cup this year. I'm going to be fascinated to watch the technology and see how it develops and see if there is some howler where someone says, well, obviously the AO got it wrong. The on-field umpire should have been the intelligent one to overrule that yeah. AI decision. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But it also interrupts the flow of the game. The game's got momentum and they stop and they want to check the video and they want to check the what the technology's got to offer. And so you sit around and wait for two, three, four, five minutes waiting yeah. for the call. And I'm convinced sometimes when you see a player make a captain's call, yeah. then you just think they're exhausted and they just need any reason for yeah. a quick break. They do a captain's call, they know it's wrong, but captain's call, let them go and check and then, okay, catch your breath, guys. Yeah. <laughs> right out, let's go. Okay, oh, we didn't listen, get that one right. Okay, on we go again. <laughs> Well, let's start off with a story that'll impact your day like a wayward asteroid, folks. It's that time of year again. For those of you holding out, the wait is nearly over. The 2022 new release of emojis is on its way. Matt, this is where you tell us what we can look forward to in the burgeoning world of emojis. Smiley face, uh, thumbs up, thumbs up, steamers, uh, sort of like streamers and uh, champagne cork popping. You have been onto your emojis, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I've just got to learn how to say them properly. I'm in a hurry and all excited. That's right. You should be excited. But there's a bit more emphasis on the number this year. So last year we talked about them. 112 new emojis got released last year. That's almost too many to choose from. Well, it is added to the ones that already exist. But this year they've cut it down a bit. There's only 31 new emojis coming out. It was just getting too much. Is that to say that, that when they released, the, what did you say, 121 or whatever before? 120 last 112 last year. 112, yep. okay. So, so many of them didn't get used that um, they decided to back off or something. Well, and I can't believe how some of them didn't get used last year. There was a pregnant person. There was a low battery sign. I'm amazed that wasn't an emoji already. And there was a crutch. Of I don't course. know, you got injured. I think they're quite usable. Yeah, that's right. That was three of the 112. Considering that I ones. use smiley face and thumbs up pretty much only. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had someone send me a message the other day and they wrote the word words, thumbs up, because they said I don't know how to use emojis, <laughs> but I want to look like I'm using emojis. <laughs> so they just wrote the words. That's great. Not sure if that's the idea of them. Anyway, so 31 new emojis. Probably the two that will be used the most out of these 31 are the violently shaking head. So if you want to say ah. no to someone, you can just say no, or you could send them soon a violently shaking, mm. as in side that's to side shaking. No. That's, that's, a, that's a definite no. Right. And not shaking as in I'm cold, shivering shaking. <laughs> I mean shaking side to side and saying I really am it's meaning no this time. Yeah. Don't so that's, use it. That's one. Maybe no. That's not a maybe no. That is a <laughs> damn hell no. And then the other one is a mean goose. Now, <laughs> of course. I'm not why sure. Why would you have a mean goose? <laughs> I'm not sure. Why have we waited this long? Goose. Well, it's just, I <laughs> thought a goose might have been enough. And I thought the goose might be a, the kind of thing you might say to someone that's being a bit of a goose. You'll send them a goose emoji. But a mean goose. Mm. It's very specific about being yeah, a mean is. goose. <laughs> the, the, the interesting part here is that we don't know what they'll look like yet. Because once they're approved, and of course they're not approved, this is just the final oh, round. Sorry, we don't know what they're going to look like. There's just, uh, we've got an idea. I'm go- we've got <laughs> so an idea. that's their job, just to come up with ideas. And but they might suggest... They don't have to draw them yet. <laughs> they don't have to draw them, because it's up to all the individual manufacturers to put their interpretation on it. Oh. So a Samsung phone or a Google emoji <laughs> okay. or an Apple phone, for example, Slightly different. they might have their own interpretations of these emojis. They get given permission by the Unicode consortium to go out and say, now you can have a shaking head emoji. <laughs> 
and then they go and draw what their interpretation is. <laughs> so like, so, someone's just got the, the like the the portfolio. Oh, you, you're on the main goose portfolio. That's right. right. Can you go and draw a main goose? Because we've now got permission to use that emoji and make it small. Obviously, so, <laughs> so small enough to be able to fit in your little message, but. Big enough to be able to see that it's mean. Big enough to be able to see it's a mean goose in that couple of millimetres <laughs> that people can see it in. You should be all right with that. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. What could go wrong? <laughs> but it is even all the different faces, and we've talked about some of the variety of faces before, the different expressions on the faces there, when they're so small, normally you're looking at them in a text message, for example. Yeah. They're so small, you've got to really look at it. Are they... Are they up Because yeah. they're giving me a mean that, face or is that just a... That goose looks a bit happy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what am I meant to say? They're calling me a goose but they're happy about it? Are, are they saying I'm silly <laughs> but I'm happy silly? I'm not sure. So look out for those ones there. The Precious final round of approval will be in September. So you won't actually see these released on any devices oh, until September. Wait months. <laughs> that's right. What are we going to do in the meantime? The next time I want to say hell no to someone, I'm going to say, <laughs> can I just give you a couple of months before I give you my answer? <laughs> or you happy to accept words. <laughs> oh, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. So keep an eye out for those. Sometime in September, we'll have the 31. And it might not be the 31. That's the final round that have been recommended for approval. Mm. There might still be some spanners in the works about those for whatever reason. Maybe there'll be some animal groups who say you shouldn't be using a geese in that way or mm. geese in that way. Animal rights activists uh, unite. Um, and I hear they've got some new colours for your hearts as well. Is that right? New colours for hearts, that's right. Not how enough many colours for hearts How many days? colours do you need? Because I thought red what was the obvious one. What does a peach heart? What does that symbolise? When do I give someone a peach heart? Rather than a red heart. Or, or a salmon heart. A salmon heart. <laughs> or as opposed to a blank internal heart, just an outline of a heart, so they can fill in their own colour. Oh, wow. So it's pretty deep, isn't it? I'm going to spend way too long thinking about which emoji to use now. <laughs> which colour heart to Can you use? just respond to my message? Wait up, wait up. I'm just trying to get the right emoji. Am I only allowed to give purple hearts if I um if I'm wounded in hospital or they're wounded in I would think that's in war time I think that's fair and reasonable. Yeah, all right, okay. Yeah, you you can't I've received a purple heart and I didn't I haven't been in any combat at all. Yeah, yeah, well there you go, someone's using it incorrectly. Electrical aviation is taking another step forward as a viable commuter option. And some would say, Matt, that this is no surprise. But what is the ins and outs of what's happening with electrical aviation? I think the real sweet spot here will be those small-ish aircraft, 15 to 30 seats, that kind of space or that kind of size, over the shorter distances, the maybe less than two-hour distances for those little commuter uh, trips. So we're looking at sort of the the east coast of Australia, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. if you're going Sydney-Melbourne or if you're going inland to Sydney or inland to Melbourne, inland to Victoria, to to Brisbane, for example, I think that's where you'll see the real sweet spot. But there's one company in America, no, one company in in Britain at the moment, who's developing a hydrid electric plane. And you think, why would you bother with a hydrid electric plane? If you're going to do those short hauls, then you do it with batteries. But this particular company believes that what they can do is still provide the electricity generation and some small batteries with a turbine, so it's kind of like a normal plane, but that turbine can just sit there at constant speed, constant revs, just generating electricity. You've got batteries on board to take out that little bit of flow that's up and down, and then you're providing all that power through to 
a propeller that's basically being driven by uh, electric motor. So they believe that whole arrangement is more efficient than just having jet engines or turboprop engines on a plane. Yeah, right. So that's a, a different way of developing it. There are other companies out there that are developing electric only. There's a startup in California, for example, called Wright Electric, as in W-R-I-G-H-T, uh, so taking off the Wright brother's expect, name. Yeah. Yep, uh, they, they are actually looking for a 100-seat aircraft, but again, that'll be some type of hybrid model, uh, but other ones are, are looking at a, a fully electric model. So there's a whole range of different things happening there. Most people say, sure, I can see maybe, maybe one day cars will eventually get there with electric motors, but oh, planes, it's just craziness, isn't it? But they're out there now, they're flying right now, and it's just a matter of them developing far enough, getting regulatory approval, and then we'll see them up in the airs. They'll be quieter in them. They'll be much more efficient. So we'll see prices come down. Those short hops, those hops that are gain that one and a half, two hour, yeah. even one hour hops. And, and the UK would be awesome place to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I'm intrigued, the fact that they're going for this hybrid model. See, the hybrid model to me seems to make more sense when you're looking at those longer flights. So if you want to start yeah. doing flights from New York to London, you want to do flights, well, let's go further, Sydney to LA, yeah. those longer flights, that's where batteries become a real problem because the amount of weight, the amount of mm. mass you've got to put up in the air, that uses up a lot of your power. So you need more mass to put up in the air to have that power to keep going and that creates more mass and then you get this ever-diminishing circle of return and so you're not going to go very far with it. So that hybrid concept works well, I think, in those cases. But in those shorter hops, I thought they would have yeah. just gone pure electric. But there's a huge amount of development happening here because companies realise that when you're developing planes, you don't think of the idea today and then whack it together tomorrow and off you go and let's start flying. There's a long development process. So some of these companies that are doing it, and Airbus is one that we've talked about before, BAE is doing it as well. So they're big companies that are doing it and they know that development time frame that's in place before you can actually get that plane up in the air with passengers on a commercial route. There's a fair few steps you've got to go through to get to that point. But an exciting uh, little space to watch, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Who would have thought that one brief second would cause such a problem? But Matt, the concept of a leap second in the computer world is upsetting the apple cart somewhat. He's upsetting the Apple cart and the Google cart and the Amazon cart and yeah, the Microsoft all cart. The carts That's right, on all the fabulous carts. interweb. For people that may not be totally familiar with it, we have leap seconds. Mm. Since 1972, we've had 27 leap seconds. And this is basically just, I mean, we conveniently come up with 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours in a day all these things, and then we have leap years to correct for that. So we know that there's not really 24 hours in a day, there's 23 hours and 56 minutes-ish. Mm. And so, But we have leap years every four years, except every 100 years. So you've got all these different rules around leap years. So that all works. That was actually a good little quiz when the year 2000 rolled around, because the year 2000, everyone that understood leap years, every four years, yes, leap year, but the year 2000 wasn't leap year. Oh, no, but it was, because every 100 years you miss, but every 1,000 years you don't miss. So it was actually, a, <laughs> for, so for people that knew a little bit, they knew, hey, every 100 years you don't, but if you knew a bit more, it was a 1,000-year problem. So there's all those complications around leap years, but... Even with all those adjustments to keep what we understand to be the Earth's rotation in sync with our simplistic clock system, every now and again, we still have to have the little leap second thrown in there. As you can imagine, a leap year throws things out. I know someone who was 
married on the 29th of February. Conveniently, he says, I don't have to worry about a anniversary every four years. Well, I've got a sister that we insisted was only allowed to have a birthday every four years. She was born on the 29th. Yeah, yeah, Wow. Yeah. I think that that would be, it'd be interesting to talk to her to see whether she's ever had problems filling in paperwork where it says date of birth and she's put 29th of February and the system doesn't recognise it because I'm sure there'd be some yeah, computer systems that wouldn't actually recognise it so she doesn't exist in that particular system. <laughs> or maybe, as you say, it might be she's only four years old when she's really 16 years old, for example. Well, she now, she wears it as a badge of pride now because she's so much younger than the rest of us. Yeah, of course, of course, that's right. She just can't get a licence yet. So, <laughs> But the problem is that when we have these leap seconds, when they occur, instead of going from 23 hours, as in 2300 hours, 59 minutes, 59 seconds, to zero, it goes to 60 seconds. So you you actually see a 59 turning into a 60 rather than a 59 turning back to zero, zero, goes to 60, then goes back to zero, zero. You can imagine the programming you need in a computer system to accommodate the leap second. So yeah. what the various large technology companies, the Microsofts, the Googles, Amazons, Facebooks, Metas, all those, even government agencies, they're saying, you know what, let's just forget about it. The leap seconds are so inconsequential in keeping everything in sync that if we just forget about it, in 2,000 years, we'll have to do something. We'll have to do some adjustment, some bigger adjustment, maybe a leap minute. That's someone else's problem. That's, I think that's <laughs> what they're kind of saying. That's tomorrow Matthew's problem, not today Matthew's <laughs> problem. So let's just forget about it because, gee, it's a pain. All those times we've had to do it over the last 20 or since 1972, and they have caused some problems. When you actually look at the history of some of those, there were a couple of things that happened that were interesting if you knew what was happening. But if you look back in 2012, the leap second triggered a massive Reddit outage. Maybe not the most important thing in the world that it caused, but there was a massive Reddit outage when Reddit system didn't actually realise that the leap second had occurred. So suddenly there was a difference of one second and so the system didn't like it. Mozilla, LinkedIn, Yelp, airline booking system called Amadeus also had a system, a problem with that as well. So there were some problems that happened. In 2017, a leap second caused a glitch at Cloudflare where it knocked the whole company network infrastructure out because there was a bit of an internal argument with the computer systems going, hold on, we've just gone back a second in time. That can't happen, so I'm just going to shut down. Because it's obviously someone trying to do something that's a bit naughty out there. And so the easiest thing for me is to shut so it down. So what's the deal here? We have to get all these different systems to agree to this? Or is it a little bit simpler than that? Well, it, you have to actually get them to agree when the leap second occurs. It's not like the Y2K problem where there was just some bad programming that had two digits for the year. When you do, and there's an international agreement about leap seconds, everyone then has to make sure that their system is ready and prepared for that extra 60 to drop in rather than 59 going to zero, zero. Yeah, okay. 59, go to 60, then go to zero, zero. Make sure your systems are ready for it. In those cases, Cloudflare, Reddit, etc. Whoops, didn't get that one right. And then there's suddenly a one second out. And there's a lot of stuff that happens to make sure that things are working properly that check the exact time, mm. not just, oh, yeah, it's about right. It's the exact time. So when those are out, that's what causes the problem. So they said, some of these technology providers said, for all the work we've got to do to make it happen, when we do agree there's a leap second required, and let's face it, there might be the next leap second coming up fairly soon, 
they might just say, forget about it. And again, wait 2,000 years. Things will be out by enough then that mm. we need to actually do something a bit more severe. And then we can deal with the problem once every 2,000 years rather than once every five years. And as you said, and it's not my problem because I won't be around in 2,000 <laughs> years' time. But it is fascinating, all the little things that happen behind the scenes to make simple things work. We've talked before about GPS, the accuracy of the clocks in GPS because they need to be so accurate that when the signals are sent at the speed of light at 3 by 10 to the 8 metres per second, there's enough distance that they're sent from the satellites that are sitting up there and our things that are sitting on the Earth and all knowing the exact time mm. to work out how far away these various things are. We don't think about that. We just punch in, I want to go across to 10 Smith Street and you work out the rest from there, thanks very much. But all these things that people are working on behind the scenes and this is another one of those. Ever lost a bag on a plane flight? Well, this story is only going to make you paranoid, and I'm sorry about that, folks. When one Florida holidaymaker popped an air tag in her bag as an insurance policy and the bag went missing, they were able to easily track it down. But, Matt, it was bad news for somebody. Am I right? You are right. And we've had a couple of stories lately about air tags yeah, being used, and I, just, I love them. I think they're fantastic. So, exactly right. We've talked about it before. Some people put a Bluetooth tracker or an air tag as a particular model in their luggage because they're not that sure there's going to be enough baggage handlers at the airport. So they might go and find it and show the airport that, hey, here's my bag. I know it's somewhere. Can you just take me to this particular location? Mm. And we talked about some thieves using GPS trackers on cars. So this one's along that same vein. This particular lady had lost her bag. She talked to the airport. They said, no, 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 it's not here. We can't find it anywhere. Sorry, it's gone somewhere. And she said, well, I've got an air tag in it. And I can see that it's not at the airport, so here's where it is. And they didn't really seem that interested, so she went to the police. And the police said, oh, well, look, we can knock on the door. Maybe it's been delivered to the wrong person. Who knows? And they knocked on the door, and someone answered. And they said, oh, you seem to have a baggage handling uniform on. Let's have a look (laughs) in your place. And they found a lot of bags in this particular person's place. They'd been getting a good little rort going because there were so many bags going missing. This particular baggage handler thought, well, they won't notice it, will they? There's so many bags going missing. It's easy to explain that, oh, whoops, don't know where that one went. I'll just take them home and raid them and away I go. What a good little side income I've got. Mm. Didn't count on the fact that someone might have put an air tag in there. Now, even if he'd gotten home... And obviously they had an Apple phone as well because you have to have it near within 10 metres of an Apple phone. Exactly right. And so it might have been someone in a next-door apartment. It might have been that particular okay, person. Yeah, yeah. could have been anyone nearby, the taxi driver on the way home. Who knows? But somewhere. And, and that's the beauty of it. If he opened that bag and went, oh no, there's an air tag in here, what have I done? So you get the hammer out and you smash it up or you go and drop it in the toilet or whatever, too late because the air tag will show you the Mm. last destination, the last location that it received a signal. So if the person got at home and there'd been another iPhone or an iPad somewhere nearby, well, oh, it was last seen here, so it might be sending a signal right now, but it might have shown the last known location. So just another reason to put a Bluetooth tracker in your luggage. And this isn't the one you hope to see. And I'm not saying that baggage handlers are all thieves. This one was. There's going to be a bad egg in, in every group of people, I suppose. So this particular one, but what a way from recording. You can just imagine the shock. The police yeah. opened the door. <laughs> How did you possibly find me? Well, sir, we just happen to have this bag here with an air tag in it. So, And the moral to the story is, of course, crime doesn't pay. All right, let's dive in and let's talk about undeclared swimming pools. Here's a new public menace, folks. Sneaky backyard splash zones have become of a concern in France. 
They're now adopting AI to scan aerial photographs of urban zones looking for unlicensed blobs of blue in people's backyards and taxing the perpetrators for their dishonesty. Matt, who knew that summer fun had such a seedy underworld? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And I don't know what taxes you pay if you live in France for your pool. Or having a swimming pool. But obviously, if you don't declare a swimming pool, you get extra taxes. Well, I hope so. Those people that didn't declare, they get their back taxes and a fine or something else on top. Chlorine tax. (laughs) Chlorine tax, maybe that's it. Now, presumably at some point, what they used to do is wait for someone to report a swimming pool. They'd go and knock on your door. Hi, can I have an inspection? No, where's your warrant? Whatever. I'm not sure how the conversation went, (laughs) but basically... Find out a pool's there, then hit them with a tax. But you can imagine... <laughs> you're hiding a, a swimming pool in your backyard. <laughs> right. No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Pretty hard thing to hide, isn't it? <laughs> but at some stage, someone knocks on a door, they find that you've got one, you start getting hit with a tax. I can't imagine it's a great process to go through to start knocking on doors randomly mm. to find people that have got pools. You probably spend more money on wages than you get back in taxes. So I reckon most people in France kind of know that and mm. they say you know what they'll never find that I've got a pool it's a pretty big thing to hide but they'll never find that I've got a pool I'll just put it in and ignore the tax but they say it with a French accent of course let's uh, not if I could do that I would <laughs> okay. but, but yes we were yeah. but the French government got a bit too smart for them so all these people who have been saying a couple of fingers up to the law then now the French government has got some AI and some photographs, some aerial images of various parts. Now, at this stage, they've only taken in nine of France's 96 metropolitan departments and started doing the testing there, and they have found a lot of swimming pools. So they've found 20,356 undeclared pools. Undeclared, contraband, (laughs) smuggled in swimming pools. That's right. My goodness. It is a seedy underworld. It is. Well, that's generated (laughs) 10 million euro per year in additional taxes so far. The warning's probably going out now to all the other people in those other metropolitan departments, those other 87 metropolitan departments, for them to start saying, oh, wait up, they're onto us. We better start doing something about it. But again, it just comes back to this technology. You've got aerial photographs and again if you said to a human just go and have a look at those photographs and try and find the pools there it's probably a little bit quicker than knocking on doors but it's still a fairly labor intensive process mm. throw ai at the problem and say here's what a pool looks like here's the general shape and size of a swimming pool now go and analyze those. oh what have you done it already that's it now <laughs> look down that list so now you can be a bit more targeted when you knock on someone's door you can say I'll knock on your door, and I'm pretty confident you're going to have a swimming pool at the back, so you can tell me you haven't got one there. Because we've already seen it. That's right, we've already (laughs) seen it. So it is interesting to see how various organisations, various businesses, various governments use aerial photography, use AI to try and get information out of it. But I just, I, I love this idea, and they're going to keep doing it, obviously. They think that they're in the vicinity of 40 million euro they'll collect each year extra in taxes from this whole process. I have no idea how much the AI and the process is costing them, but you can't imagine it's costing them anywhere near 40 million euro to actually do this process. Well, all I can think of is that if you're going to have an illegal swimming pool, then you probably want to get a a pool cover that looks like a lawn. (laughs) Don't get them ideas, James. There'll be this whole process now where everyone will be quickly producing these green-covered pool covers, green-coloured pool covers. Renewable energy just hammered home another nail in the coffin of coal and gas with an aesthetically pleasing and environmentally friendly wind turbine that churns out power like nobody's business. A new record has been set for wind turbine power, Matt. A new record, but I want to go back a little bit. This is the current 
latest technology in terms of windmills or wind turbines. But let's go back through yeah, can history. We just clarify, a windmill is not generating electricity, is it? A windmill is grinding flour in Holland, in the <laughs> Netherlands. Well, a windmill, you can still talk about things like pumping water as well. Oh, okay, yeah, look, I'm, yeah. I'm probably being a bit loose there using the term windmill. I, I just when I hear windmill, I think Donald Trump misunderstanding again. <laughs> yeah, probably right. Okay, I'll take it back. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're talking about the latest in wind turbines. Wind turbines, thank you very much. That's right. But let's go back in windmills. About two millennia, we've been using windmills or wind to power things like grinding grain, mm. like pumping water. So we've been pretty good at saying, hold on, there's a bit of wind there. Can I do something with that? And yes, we have been able to do something with it. Then jump forward to 1887. That was the very first wind turbine that was used to produce electricity. So there's a fair bit of history there. And then jump forward. 1887, that's a lot earlier than I would have thought. I would have put it somewhere in the mid-1900s. Well, keep in mind that around that time, obviously there was a lot of work being done by people like Edison, by Tesla, in trying to capture the electricity market and the ACDC wars, all those things. But keep in mind that... Niagara Falls had some hydro power being yeah. generated there. So there was an understanding of spinning something, Lenz's law. Anything to spin. That's right. So yeah. wind turbine spinning, that sounds pretty cool. So people back in 1887 would set up a wind turbine at a house. So how do you get power to that house? Because they didn't really have a transmission grid. Oh, well, you just stick a wind turbine in there. So people were selling them. Per household, you'd go and put yeah, your own right. wind turbine in. So it seems like we're going back to the future a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> but 1980 was the first wind farm. So there were 20 turbines installed in 1980 in the first wind farm across the world. So that's somewhere that was specific about generating power for the grid. And obviously mm. since 1980, we've come a long way. But when you look at this particular record, then in one day, in 24 hours, this latest wind turbine produced 359 megawatt hours. This is one turbine. Now, it's no little basic turbine. It's a turbine that has blades that are 108 metres in length. Oh, wow. The the radius, or the diameter, sorry, of the turbines is 222 metres, so it's a fair (laughs) old area. It's an offshore turbine. Yeah, Most of the big ones, Yeah. yeah, most of the big ones are offshore. But when you start to break down what you can do with a turbine that produces 359 megawatt hours, it's enough power for 18,000 homes or wow. average driving, 60,000 electric vehicles. So let's put it in perspective. You go to a reasonable sized regional city, you might have a population of say 60,000. They might have maybe three people per home. So they might have maybe 20,000 homes in that particular area. Very rough numbers there. But when you think about that, Think about a reasonable-sized regional city, one turbine. One turbine. One turbine enough to power that entire, all the homes. I'm talking about industry there. put two in and have a little bit of spare stuff. (laughs) That's that's right. (laughs) Put two in in different parts of the city and you'd maybe cover when wind doesn't blow quite so hard. Mm. But that's where we're headed. We seem to be headed for larger and larger. And it makes sense. When I'm putting a wind turbine offshore, I've got to get some power to it. I've got to get some cabling to it. There's a certain amount of work to get that cabling to it. I've got to have some way of securing that wind turbine out in the middle of the ocean. 
if I only have to do that 10 times instead of 15 times, mm. then obviously that makes the whole process more efficient. So they are making them bigger and bigger because all of that underground or underwater infrastructure you put in, if you can do that less, mm. that seems like a good thing. So this particular one, I think we'll see more and more. Will they break this record soon? Probably. But we'll see more and more of this type of thing. But the other thing we're seeing a lot of as well, in conjunction with turbines that are getting this large, is the triple threat, the combination of all three. You'll see areas coming up soon, and they're already being built now, that'll have wind turbines, they'll have some solar panels, and they'll have a battery. So the idea is from those three, you've got wind blowing most of the time, you've got sun shining during the day, you've got a battery being charged up when it's being produced or when power's being produced, but also then battery for the times that wind and solar aren't being produced. So you basically got a whole wind solar generation area, a whole renewable area that's generating power consistently, you can say, all the time because amongst those three, you're able to put power out on the grid consistently. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Now, recyclable as well, is that right? So the blades are now being recycled. So the blades in this particular one, and we've talked a little bit before about how you might try and recycle. There are different things that are being done. We talked about a resin that you could use for mm. gummy bears afterwards. This particular one is made out of a single gigantic piece of recyclable resin. So you put this 108 metre blade up, you let it spin away there for 25, 30 years, maybe longer, and then finally you say, oh, only 359 megawatt hours in a day, we've got a much bigger one now. Let's go and mm. upgrade that new to the, the new turbine, whatever it might be. Oh no, what are we going to do with this old blade? So this blade is made so that it can be recycled. And that's one of the arguments against it's a weak argument in my opinion but one of the arguments against wind turbines is oh no after the 25 or 30 years you've got to throw out that bit of fiberglass or bury that bit of fiberglass so this resin is made in such a way that it can be broken down again and then made into huh, new turbines or whatever else you might want to make out of it and now we just have to do something about the enormous bird cemetery at the bottom of it as well is that right <laughs> that's the other one yeah uh. Uh, look and, and we have talked about it before briefly but I've been down to a wind turbine farm probably six months or so ago and one of the things they had to do as part of their approval process was actually track. They had university students come out and every day they would go out and track the number of birds that were on the ground around a certain radius of each wind turbine and the students had a pretty boring time because they didn't find many birds there. There were some there but not very right. many. So the bird cemetery might be a little bit over the top but, <laughs> but there's certainly some there but let's face it, if we don't do something, there are going to be a lot more birds die. The bird cemetery is going to be right. much larger because climate change is and going it won't to affect be just the birds. Yeah, that's right. Well, folks, it's scam time again. A new mes text message scam known as pig butchering is circulating, and one unlucky sod has been ripped off to the tune of 1.6 big ones. Listen up to Matt, who will give you the tips on how not to be swindled to the value of decent house prices in the suburbs. We've actually gone fairly well recently. I don't think I've had many scam stories lately, which means the prevalence of scams has been dropping a little bit. But there's mm. always the competition so out there. The scams, they've just been hacking into Optus and <laughs> Medibank <laughs> and right. just going larger get, scale. That's right. Forget about scamming uh, individuals. Sick of texting people. <laughs> I'm going to go and just hack big industry. Go big or go home. <laughs> and this one has actually picked up 
2,000 victims so far. So there are yeah. still around, a few around. And the average loss for each of those 2,000 has been $300,000. Wow. Now, I'll get to the reason it's called pig butchery in a moment. But the process here is a very complicated, devious, long-term plan by the scammers. It's not just a simple send a text out, hey, you've won lotto, hey, you owe money to the tax office, whatever, click on this link, and then you get sucked in. It's a really simple process. And some of these scammers that have been caught have been interviewed, and they've told the investigators, the FBI, whoever it might be, that these scamming organisations, remember we've talked about that before, that they're not just a little kid sitting in their basement in a darkened room. Mm. These are professional, large-scale organisations they employ multiple psychologists because what they want to do is get ways that you are going to be tricked. And this one is a classic. They send an email or a text, usually a text to you and say, hi, and they might have your name because they might have picked up that data from, say, an Optus data breach, or they may not have your name, but say it might just say, hey, what time are we meeting at the pub tonight? And you get a text message from a number you don't know that says that, and your first reaction is, oh, well, they've got the wrong number. But you're a nice person, James. You might be polite enough to go back to that person and say, oh, sorry, I think you've got the wrong number. Yeah, and this that's has happened to me on WhatsApp. As, uh, shocker. So I've only, I've only ever replied once. Right. And, and then, then I realised, hang on a second. <laughs> this <laughs> well, happening a bit frequently. And so I picked you right. I said you're a nice guy. And you <laughs> replied back, wrong person, sorry. Which many people do because someone thinks, oh, well, it's a bit embarrassing if they're thinking they're yeah. going to meet someone at the pub that night. And they don't turn up. And so uh, I'll do the right thing. I'll just send back a message to say, I think you've got the wrong number. Mm. Then using all these little psychological tools, these scripts that have been written for them by psychologists, they might come back and say, oh, sorry, I was chasing blah, blah, blah. We were going to. And they're just trying to get a bit of extra information out of you. Mm. Then you come back because you're polite again and answer that. Oh, no, this is where I am. Just a little conversation. Then nothing. Then you might get another text the next day. Oh, wasn't that funny yesterday, that message I sent you incorrectly. And they're just using these little techniques to just start to befriend you in a very loose sense of the word. After about two months of this process, just little tidbits thrown out there, little snippets, then they get a little bit more serious in their conversation. Oh, yeah, I'm just about to do and jump on a flight. I've just been doing so well with my crypto investments lately. Oh, really? Yeah, I made $10 million in the last year. Wow, how did you do that? On it goes. Next uh, thing you know, they tell you about some great crypto site that you can invest in. Just throw 100 bucks in. Oh, what are, how am I going to do? $100? Oh, I'll give that a go. $100 goes in. You look at the investment the next day, it's gone up to $150. Wow, that was good. Why don't you put a bit more in? And off it goes. Uh, so you just keep putting a bit more in until one day... You put a bit more in and then the communication stops and when they figure they've got everything they can out of you, then that's the end of the story and your money is gone, gone and gone. And obviously the places they're telling you about don't really exist. They're simply a site that they've set up to make it look like a crypto trading site. So <laughs> all the gains that you've supposedly had are not correct. Now, the pig butchering comes from the whole idea that a farmer might fatten up his pig before he mm. takes it to market. So he's feeding the pig, he's giving it more information, more food, more data in the case of texting. So just fattening it, fattening it, and then once he figures it's completely fat and ready to go, then basically takes it to the markets or takes it to the abattoirs. And that's exactly what happens. They're feeding you information. They're slowly just getting more and more ingrained in your life. And 
sometimes I suppose what they're looking for is someone that is nice and friendly and responds, and they might just happen to luck on someone that's a bit lonely. They might have lost a partner recently. They might have been a bit uh, restricted in their movements with COVID, so they're not associated with people as much. We all just have moments of weakness, don't we? Oh, that's it. So it's another one to be careful of in terms of just everything that happens. And it, it actually makes me a bit sad about society because I feel like I'm doubting everyone yeah. that I get a message from. I doubt everything that comes. So when a legitimate request comes through or a legitimate opportunity in, in a business scenario, you might miss some of those because you're always on the lookout for people trying to do the wrong thing. So it actually, I don't like what it does to me as a person because everything you see, you're just thinking of the negative side of it yep. instead of the positive. Suspicious of everything now yeah. and um, yeah. So um, while I've said that now, be suspicious of that text message that comes in that's the wrong number. And be really careful if you send out a message organising to meet someone at the pub and you get nothing back. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> While snail mail may not feature on your radar much these days, I'm going to send out a big shout out to the posties around the country for the great service that they still provide in an age of instant gratification. As we head into the silly season, they are every bit set to help all the bajillion parcels work their Christmas magic with all the toing and froing that needs to be done there. But Australia Post has another important role in the lead up to Christmas this year. With so many vehicles out on the road, they'll be playing an important role in mapping black spots for phone coverage. This is the old killing two birds with one stone, isn't it, Matt? I really like this idea, and I want to try and create an eponymous law today. Eponymous. That's your word for the day, folks. Eponymous. <laughs> I want to call it Dickerson's Dissatisfaction with Advancing Telecommunications Law, or let's call it Dadattle for short, <laughs> double D at the, at the front, so you can stutter a little bit on that. The problem is, and, and this this law, a bit like, say, Moore's law, where we talk about advancing semiconductors and doubling every 18 months, this law, this is my law, so I can phrase it how I like, but this law says, as our telecommunication services improve, so do our expectation levels such that our dissatisfaction level remains the same. Yeah, I would say that that's a pretty good law. So I go back to my you first... You put your stamp on that one. Yeah, good. Thank you. I go back to my first mobile phone sale, 26th of July, 1990. I sold my first mobile phone. And the coverage in the area where I sold that was horrific. You had to stand <laughs> within sight of the tower to maybe say to people, within look at me. Within sight of the person you're talking to. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> look at me. How clever am I? I'm making a mobile phone call, but I can't move and I can't go around the corner there. So the coverage was terrible. In between towns, forget about it. Around the block, maybe forget about it as well. But people bought phones and thought, aren't these fantastic? Aren't these exciting? We've progressed over time, obviously. Mm. So we're getting much better coverage. We're getting much better coverage between towns now. Jumping in the car and driving some distance, you can often kill a bit of time with all those phone calls you can make along the way. So fantastic. But still, as per Dattle, the <laughs> dissatisfaction level remains about the same. And so the latest from the Australian government, which I think is very clever, is they're fitting all these Australia Post vehicles, actually not all of them, some of them, there are 20,600 delivery vehicles at the moment across the Australia Post network. That's a fair sort of a fleet. That is a fair sort of a fleet. They've got 12.3 million addresses they go to. So if you want to get some idea of the coverage of something, if you sit back and go, what's some way we can get to all those places? Sure, do a Google and hire a bunch of vehicles and put some equipment on them and start sending drivers around. That's expensive. But putting them on Australia Post vehicles, as they're already doing their job, 
And they'll be mapping two things. They'll be mapping the coverage, but also the service level. So the congestion, for example. So you might yeah. find that in some places, sure, you've got four bars here. This is fantastic. Don't need to worry about there. But lots of people live in that area or lots of people have moved to that area. So suddenly the four bars are of no use to you because so many people are there. So it's very congested. Yeah. So they'll be testing both of those things. They'll have equipment installed on their vehicles that will test both the signal quality and the congestion levels there. So they'll be actually sending some traffic as they go. With all of that information, you'll be able to map out really accurate maps for coverage. Now, the only question I haven't been able to answer yet is if I'm wanting to know what the coverage is like, I'll go to my carrier. There are three main carriers in Australia, three different sets of towers, and I'll go to my preferred one of those three and look at the coverage for that particular provider. Is this going to give me, from the Australia Post perspective, the coverage for each of my three different providers? Because I don't really care what the coverage is like with carrier A and carrier B if I'm with carrier C. I only care about carrier C. And there are maps, obviously, those carriers put out. Here's the coverage you get with our carriage service. So people look at those maps and compare those, but they're not really accurate. And that's what they're trying to do with this. They're trying to get them really accurate. But then they say, we've got a problem here. The coverage isn't great in this particular area. Then they've got to go through that process of black spot funding, which one of the three carriers gets that black spot funding and different carriers have won those different contracts over the years. So it still doesn't help consumer who, or a consumer who's got service with one carrier. Most people I know don't have services with three carriers. Some yeah. actually have it with two, especially now with phones that are dual SIM, they might have two carriers set up in their one phone so they'll get coverage across those different black spot areas. But that's still the problem we have in this nation. So we'll get really accurate maps across the three carriers. We can apply that or the, the federal government can apply some of that with black spot funding, but then it still leaves that problem that which carrier are you with and despite what Australia Post might show in their testing, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem for you. But at least it's one step forward in being able to map it a little bit more clearly. You are spot on. Is there nothing a 3D printer cannot do? Certainly printing prosthetic arms, hands and legs is nothing short of a modern day wonder. But nevertheless, uh, it's all getting a little bit old hat now. But anyone who's had knee surgery will tell you that the knee joint is a biological marvel. And fixing them is tricky to say the least. It has to carry almost the entire body weight, plus some more sometimes, but yet remain flexible and strong even when it's in its weakest position, that is, when it's bent, of course. So once the joint fails and needs repair, things are never quite the same again, even after surgery. But Matt, things are on the up thanks to 3D printing. Is there nothing, as you say, is there nothing it's we can't amazing. do with 3D it's printing? It's a revolution it is to fantastic. the world. Yeah. Now, I know some friends of mine that have had new knees put in, and the advice out there I'd give to everyone is apparently if you're going to have a knee done, get both done. Apparently it's the most painful thing in uh. the world, and some males, and apologies to females out there, say it's worse than childbirth without having <laughs> known what childbirth was like, but they say it's very painful. Yeah, and the right. problem is when people, and I've got one friend in particular who has had one knee done, and that knee's fantastic now, but he said it was so painful. His other knee, which was just as bad, he's not going to get done because he doesn't want to put it with the pain. Oh, so yeah. getting two done at the same time is the trick. The big problem at the moment, though, is a surgeon has a process where they open up your knee, and it's pretty gory if you go and look at pictures of it, mm. and they replace the knee, chop off some bits of your femur. It's and, such a complex joint as well because oh, it's got such an enormous job to do. And it just seems a bit overly simplistic, doesn't it? 
couple of bits there, just held yeah. together a bit of cartilage and that'll yeah. all be okay. It's not like a, a hip joint that can you know go into a ball and socket. It seems like a almost too simplistic and just a few bits of cartilage holding the whole thing together. Yeah. But the problem is that at the moment what they do is they open up your knee, they chop off a bit of your, your bottom part of your femur, whack in another bit in there and make it all come together. But the issue is they've normally got a few different sizes sitting on a desk or a table in the surgery mm. and they pull it out the old one they go oh it looks like uh, size three no no james looks like about a size four right we'll whack that wow. one in there but if you happen to be a size three and a half or a four and a half then about 20 percent of knee operations people report their knee isn't feeling right and that's because the knee size just wasn't quite what it was oh, before. So it's not bad. They've got a few different sizes there. And yeah. in general, obviously, 80% of people have a good experience out of it. But the next thing that surgeons have said is, well, why don't we just print a new one for them? Sounds pretty easy. So what they're doing now is they're doing a full CT scan, 3D CT scan of your existing knee. Then they're seeing that off to America. There's a company there that will 3D print a new knee for you, exactly the same as your old one, except obviously as it was new rather than as a, the worn out version of it. Then they freight it to Australia, air freight it to Australia, so you've got it very quickly. Then they go and do the surgery. They don't have to go and check out size three, size four, knees. They just whack in the one. They've got a Matthew Dickerson size Exactly right. Knee. And so the outcome from this, what they're finding is a whole range of good outcomes. First of all, it feels right. When you wake up from surgery, yes, it's painful, but as you get over that, the knee feels right because it is. It's a replica of your knee. Mm. They're finding the recovery times are much better. They're finding the amount of time people need with physio is much better. They're actually finding the time in surgery, therefore the cost of surgery. Obviously, surgeons make a little bit of money, and if they can do one or two more surgeries a day because they're not fiddling around checking knee sizes against the variety of knee size options they've got, when they know they've got the right size to go straight in, they can just pull out the old one, put in the new one, and away they go. Now, I do sound like I'm trivialising a little bit there. There's a little bit more than whack out the old one and whack in the new one. It's a slightly more complicated but process. But we're getting closer to that stage where we just pop in a new knee for you. That's right. I'll just duck into... At lunchtime. And that's right. My, <laughs> my mate just up the road does them. I'll get a new one and, and be back this afternoon to play a bit of basketball. So that's where we're headed. But again, this whole concept of 3D printing body parts... Mm. And we've tried, we've talked about it before, we've tried some of the more active body parts. A knee is a little bit less active than, say, a heart. Mm. We haven't really got there with 3D printing some of those parts. So we've been trying on that, but certainly 3D printing, for example, ears. We've had people have some 3D printing of, of the actual outside of the ear, so you can look a bit more normal if something's happened to your ear. Maybe mm. you're a rugby player or something. Ah. Um, but bones, as, as we talked about here with knees. So we are 3D printing various bits and pieces of our body and doing it more successfully, doing it cheaper and better outcomes for the patient. So it does sound fantastic. So that's happening in Australia now. There's only or there's fewer than 20 surgeons around this country that are actually doing this at the moment, 20 knee surgeons out there. And it's amazing. I actually looked up how many knee joint replacements there are. There are more, last year there were more than 62,500 knee replacements. So that yeah. blew me away. I, in my mind, knows someone who's had a knee replacement. Yeah, in my mind I was thinking in the thousands, but I'd like to actually have data to validate or to, to make me completely wrong, but 62,500 seems like a lot. Yeah. Most of those, or all of those at this stage, would have been done in that way where they just pick a size. But now, starting to move that way. So if you better have a knee replacement done, I'd say to your surgeon, I want a 3D printer on things. I want it to be the same as this. It was only a matter of time, and it's finally happened now. And I find this story is very exciting, folks. 
it's going to get some people really thinking about where they stand on the issue of food production. The first lab-grown chicken meat is set to hit the US market shelves very soon. It's been given the all-clear by the US regulators. Matt, the phrase lab-grown chicken meat has all sorts of connotations, and the concept has important implications for the future. Let's ruffle ruffle some feathers and get the finger-licking details of this story. Well, it's funny, you know, we've done the stories on lab-grown meat and lab-grown blood, but let's not go there because you're not eating the blood, but lab-grown meat. And I had some people who said to me after they listened to that story, I felt a bit squirmish thinking of the idea of meat that wasn't grown on an animal and you expect me to eat that. But funnily enough, I had some people who said the opposite. They said they felt squirmish about the idea of having a live animal that you kill and then take the meat off it and then eat that, oh, that sounds disgusting. But grow that same product in a lab, oh, I'm actually quite open to that idea. So as much as... I've always wondered how a vegan would feel about that. Because in terms of exploiting animals, you've you've only ripped one cell from it, effectively. Yeah. And I did actually talk to a few vegetarians, not vegans and vegetarians, about exactly this concept when we did the lab-grown meat story. And again, they were a bit mixed. Some of them said, yeah, I'll be quite comfortable with that. It's not killing an animal. I don't feel comfortable about killing an animal. So I'm quite comfortable with that. But other people said, or other vegetarians still said, you're still taking some part of an animal and then sure, growing it from there, still didn't feel that comfortable. But again, Mm. it's different ways of looking at things. We live in a wonderful community where everyone has got different opinions, different approaches to things. But at this stage, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the US has said, we're giving approval for cell cultured chicken. Now, the reason they did it, which I find intriguing, is they've given it careful evaluation. Mm, what's careful evaluation <laughs> mean? And I'd rather see we've put it through a range of rigorous tests and here's all the results of those tests and everything's okay, it's safe to eat, but careful evaluation, does that mean they sit around the boardroom and go, what do you think? Mm. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Oh, we've, we've evaluated that. Go for it. <laughs> and let's see how it goes out there. But I think the logic is, that we've talked about before, You've got atoms, you've got components, that the, the building blocks of nature, if you like, that make up things. If you can build it that same way through a different process or the same result, surely it's okay. And that's what the FDA is saying. It well, looks okay. The thing about growing growing your chicken meat in a Petri dish, and, and that, that idea sounds repulsive to some people. A lot of people, I mean, farmers will have their back up potentially about, oh, you know, you're taking away my business. But we're... We hit a population of 8 billion people. Mm. Um, and anyone who's had chicken nuggets doesn't really care about where the chickens come from or where the meats come from, surely. Are there but, chick- is there chicken in chicken nuggets? Is that part of it? Yeah, but, I, I, look, I don't want to offend anyone. I think there is chicken in chicken nuggets, but where, what part that came from, who knows? Look, uh, but, but we're talking about, you know, we're not killing traditional farming here. We're trying to supplement it. Um, and, and in uh, a world that could be, and you know, we've had lots of floods and whatnot, but we also get lots of droughts, water is, uh, is a precious resource, fresh water that is. So if you're only supplying this meat with exactly the resources that it needs without the wastage that goes with traditional farming, then surely they can com- complement each other and feed a hungry planet. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. One of the things is that you talk about the farming sector it isn't designed to kill that sector off. It's really designed to produce enough food, as you say, to, to feed 8 billion people. The big thing here is that when you grow chicken in the laboratory, chicken or meat in the laboratory, 
you make incredible savings with carbon dioxide emissions, yeah. you make incredible savings with water, water usage, so you're able to produce it more efficiently. So I see the future being you'll go to a supermarket, you'll see the lab-grown meat, the lab-grown chicken, you'll see the farm-grown chicken, the farm-grown meat, and they will sit there side by side on the shelves, there'll still be a place for both, but the big part, the really important part is that we'll be able to feed the number of people we've got on our planet. Mm. So if you see that lab-grown chicken meat in the supermarket, give it a go. I haven't tried it yet. I haven't seen I'm it I'm excited by it, yeah. And look, I even see that um, you know, farmers might all chip in, and, and Australian farmers are a communal sort of bunch, that they may even you know chip in and have a communal lab that they all sort of, uh, uh, you know, feed uh, you know with finance and whatnot but also take the the benefits from that back as well um, and yeah I, I can see you know I can see that there's a real future in this and we'll think about exactly you said maybe farmers end up with a lab on their farm so they're yeah. selling to the market lab grown and farm grown meat and yeah, yeah look, there's a market there. anyway yeah. quite fascinating and with that we start off season three of Tech Talk ready to bring you nine new topics each and every week. We hope 2023 is a wonderful tech year for you and thank you for bringing us into your lives each week.